Hello, Ghostbusters. This is Janine Melnick speaking. Yeah, the real one. Oh, sorry to hear your place is haunted, but the guys, they're out at the moment. Really? You want me to put you on hold? Well, okay. The hold music is Reitman for the Job, podcast with Ross May. Dr. Vankman says it's all we can afford. Yeah. Okay, I'll talk to you later when they're back. Bye. Never, never let them eat after midnight. Because when they do, they change. They become clever. Mischievous. What's going on here? And dangerous. Gremlins, huh? Little monsters. Right. Hundreds of them. Well, I, I don't know, maybe thousands. They've been here too. Billy, what are these things? Where do they come from? Look, I know it sounds crazy, I know. But in a few hours, you're gonna have a major disaster on your hands. Gremlins. Directed by Joe Dante. They'll be expecting you. Ghosts. Hello, Ghostbusters. They're real. You do? They're mean. You have? They're here. Busters. Hey, anybody see a ghost? They catch the ghost that won't stay dead. They're armed. <laughs> They're dangerous. Try to imagine all life as you know it stopping instantaneously and every molecule in your body exploding at the speed of light. All right, that's bad. Okay. All right, important safety tip. Thanks, Egon. They're professionals. Oh, I'm the chairman of the largest paranormal removal company in America. You see it? They're all that stands between you and the end of the world. The city is headed for a disaster of biblical proportion. Real wrath of God type stuff. Fire and brimstone coming down from the sky. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria. Your girlfriend lives in the corner penthouse of Spook Central. You want this body? Is this a trick question? Very stick. Hold! Him up! Smoke it! Make him hard! Ready! Ghostbusters. Starring Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, Sigourney Weaver, Harold Ramis, Rick Moranis. Who you gonna call? Ghostbusters! Who you gonna call? Ghostbusters! Uh, I think you better call. Ghostbusters! <laughs> Who you gonna call? Ghostbusters! I can't feel you. Who you gonna call?
Welcome to Reitman for the Job, where there is no Ross May, only Zool. We made it, everybody. Bet you thought we wouldn't, huh? After covering all of Ivan Reitman's earlier films, the colleagues and friends he's made in the 70s and 80s, we're finally at his biggest hit, Ghostbusters. Hey, it's been a while since I answered listener questions. Armand Tamzarian writes in to ask, Ross, have you met anyone from the Ghostbusters movies? And who would you like to meet the most? Thanks. From the movies, I've only met one, and if you ever go to a convention, it's the person you're most likely to meet. Mr. Ernie Hudson. Yes, I wore a Ghostbusters flight suit. My son had on my old Kenner proton pack. He was already familiar with the cartoon, so he was happy but also kind of confused at meeting a Ghostbuster. And my youngest was still a baby. <laughs> and I'm kind of crafty. I made her a marshmallow costume. She had a little blue and white sailor bib and a child's chef hat flattened down and made into the white and blue sailor hat with a little red ribbon attached. Ernie Hudson said, Aw, a beautiful family. Also, his wife Linda absolutely loved our kids dressed up. A little later when I got an autograph, I thanked both of them for coming, and I think she was kind of tickled that my wife and I understood who she was. I mean, there's staff all around, so not all the guests realized that they're married. And that's it, a sweet but not particularly interesting story otherwise. I'll share stories of meeting some real Ghostbusters people another day. Of course I've met real Ghostbusters people. Oh, extreme Ghostbusters people too, I forgot. Now who would I like to meet the most? I think a lot of people would say Bill Murray. People want that spontaneous, unique interaction with him. And hey, I'm down for that, but I know it can't be forced. If I never run into Mr. Murray, then it's just not meant to be. For me, it would have been Harold Ramis when he was alive. And not that he was always available to everyone, but he sounds pretty normal, pretty down-to-earth. In Violet Ramis Steele's book, Ghostbusters' Daughter, Seth Rogen writes at the introduction about how happy he was that Ramis just hung out with him. I would have liked to talk to Harold Ramis about Buddhism, and just whatever. And of course, I'd love to meet lots of the folks involved with Ghostbusters. But doing this podcast, of course I'd like to especially talk to Ivan Reitman. The thing is, I don't see him hanging out casually, which is fine. In fact, if it was an interview situation with him, I'd have some questions, but not the old tired ones about Ghostbusters in general, but also nothing particularly meaningful or heartfelt, like how he views comedy or his career on the whole. No, I'd just like to ask him a bunch of little nitty-gritty questions, like, do you remember first meeting Rick Moranis? What about Joe Medjuk? You two are so close, so where did you meet and what made you decide to work together? That's like one of the most fundamentally important aspects to their careers, but I don't see people asking him those questions. Also, I especially want to know why he stopped working with Elmer Bernstein. I hope it wasn't a souring of the relationship or anything, but I would just like to know. So yeah. I've met Ernie Hudson, I would like to have met Harold Ramis, and would like to ask a bunch of small questions to Ivan Reitman, just because I think we're getting a clearer picture of his career on this podcast. Hey, did you know that you can get from Street Fighter to Avatar? Or that it's just a quick detour from the Collector to Electra? Join us on Filmstrips, the podcast that explores all the connections you never knew existed. Each episode, David and I throw a brand new film under the microscope. Maybe it's a musical. Maybe it's a monster movie. Maybe it's terrible. The only rule is that it has to connect to the episode before. So join us each week for a brand new episode available on iTunes, Podomatic, or wherever free podcasts are sold. Get yourself a shotgun seat as we take a long, strange trip through the movies. 
Gremlins debuted June 8th, 1984. What else was happening at that time? Oh hey, Ghostbusters saw a wide release the same day. Ghostbusters had a premiere in Westwood on June 7th, but seriously, June 8th is the day that matters. Yeah, if you like my joke at the top of the podcast, Gremlins and Ghostbusters came out at the same time. That's pretty crazy to me. Two very memorable movie franchises started on the same day. And they're both comedies, they both have supernatural bents, and they both rely on puppets. Huh, interesting. By the way, Gremlins wasn't that far behind Ghostbusters at the box office, which is also crazy considering what a huge hit Ghostbusters was. But jumping around, some other news in June. Bruce Springsteen released Born in the USA on June 4th. On June 6th in the Soviet Union, engineer Alexei Pajetnov completed programming Tetris. So Tetris and Ghostbusters were born a few days away from each other, which is neat. Pajetnov was a government employee using government computers, so it took a while for Soviets to actually figure out what to do with his game or who should own it. Read up on that story, as it's pretty interesting before it finally got official Nintendo releases, and it remarkably has a pretty happy ending, because Pajetnov has been able to profit from, and even control, the game he created. And here are some unhappy news. International news that I doubt a lot of people of my generation who grew up with Ghostbusters are aware of. In Punjab, India, Operation Blue Star ended on June 8th, the same day as Ghostbusters' release. Militants had been occupying the Golden Temple, the holy site for the Sikh faith, and stockpiling weapons. Negotiations failed, so Prime Minister Indira Gandhi ordered Operation Blue Star and had the army go in and clear out the temple by force. The fighting went on for days, and at least 83 Indian soldiers were killed, and 493 militants and civilians were killed, and that number is probably actually greater. The violence of Operation Blue Star was caused by and resulted in more violence between people of Sikh and Hindu faiths in India. To give just one example, Prime Minister Indira Gandhi was assassinated later that year. I will move away from this topic. I just found it a good reminder that there's often something of far greater consequence happening around the world. It's kind of important to keep a perspective when we're focusing just on pop culture things that we love. I believe I've done plenty of setup for Ghostbusters, so let's go through it together. A reminder of all my previous disclaimers from way back when, particularly that I'll get some facts wrong, hopefully small details, and hey, I do welcome to be politely corrected online, at Ross May Writer on Twitter, so there's that. Oh, and a few more. One, I won't be going through every little story beat and comparing it to what was written in the script. It would be better if you just find a copy, maybe online, of Making Ghostbusters by Don Shea, and just follow along with the script that's in there. I'll only occasionally be mentioning earlier plans. Related to that, I won't always be mentioning the TV edited version of the film. There are some interesting differences to talk about, but I'm not intimately familiar with the TV broadcast edits. Man, I'd love a recording of that now, the TV edit of the movie. Ditto-wise, I won't be talking about each and every deleted scene. Some of them, but definitely not all. Secondly, I've never been to New York. Surprising, I know. I'll be talking about shooting locations a fair bit, but not as much as someone who's intimately familiar with the city. If you're curious, Google Ghostbusters shooting locations, because there's a lot of great resources out there. As always, Paul Rudolph of Spook Central has compiled some of the best information online. And finally, I won't really be talking about ideas outside of the movie. If the video game, or comics, or cartoons... 
If any of them expand on some aspect about Gozer or Shandor's cult or the guy's childhoods before this movie, I won't touch on it just because then I'd be always referencing outside of the movie itself. This is also handy because Ghostbusters Afterlife isn't out yet, so I won't be talking about how that movie adds new context to what we see here. Huh, maybe that's an idea to cover in the future. and running. A quick note on the music again, I believe those weird twang notes you hear, including the very first sound in the movie, is the Yamaha DX7. The haunting long notes are the own Martineau, played by Cynthia Miller. Here's an element you probably never paid attention to at the start of Ghostbusters. There are no credits. No directed by Ivan Reitman, no written buys or starring roles, that's not totally unusual, as some movies had been doing this cold open with absolutely no names credited for decades. But we know where this trend really took hold. It was Star Wars in 77. I just want to point out, Ivan Reitman must have made this choice to not have names flash up. You can even tell it was shot and edited in such a way that could allow for credits. The librarian doesn't do anything of note for a while, so you can imagine, directed by Ivan Reitman, starring Bill Murray, and all that other good text could have been up on the screen as we followed her. Ivan had opening credits for Meatballs and Stripes, but not here, his biggest, most modern blockbuster movie. When it all came together in editing, did he see, aside from it being a comedy, did he see how it was more like these big, modern films like Star Wars movies? I have to wonder. Our first shot is the New York Public Library's main branch on Fifth Avenue, and they were doing restoration work on it. You can say maybe it's too bad they couldn't film when it was not being worked on, but on the other hand, this really sets it in a time and place. I'm not going to say everything about the building, go read up on it, but it was opened in 1911. Also, here's a fact a lot of people might not know about. Look at all the text we see on it. So a lot of famous buildings in New York have stone inscriptions in their facades. We see New York Public Library, in big letters, and even further above that, there are names of the library's founders, the Astors and the Lennoxes and the Tildens. But anyway, anyway, people had to carve these letters into stone. They'd chisel on slates first, then set the slates into the building, so it's not like they were chiseling words while they were way up high on scaffolding. One of the many people working on these facade letters was a young man named Ira Schnapp, he was primarily a designer and might not have chiseled any of the letters himself, but who knows? My point, my point. This man, Ira Schnapp, helped work on the letters of the New York Public Library. Almost 30 years later, Schnapp would design the title logo for a little comic book character known as Superman. You know, the standard Superman title in 3D letters? Ira Schnapp drew those. And then years later, Superboy, The Flash, Green Lantern, the Justice League of America, and tons more. The man who designed all those title logos for DC Comics in New York, remember DC Comics was in New York City, but he also designed the text for some of the city's most iconic buildings, including the main post office, the public library, and maybe, maybe even some of the buildings at Columbia University. 
I find it so appropriate that a man who worked on designing text for some of America's most famous comic books also did the same for New York landmarks, and his work is seen in the first frame of Ghostbusters. Ah, just starting out and I'm already going on tangents. Yes, there's the library and one of the lions. The lions were just restored in 1975, by the way. This is an easy idea to pick up on, but Ivan Reitman has said that the idea is what if statues in New York City could come alive, which is exactly what happens with the terror dogs later. It also thematically sets up the idea that an architect, in this case Ivo Shandor, built something in New York that can reach out to the supernatural. And we are inside the library. The librarian here is New York actress Alice Drummond, who passed away in 2016. And I'll mention this now, in a few scenes, Bill Murray just calls her Alice. He does this with Jennifer Runyon, the co-ed in the lab, too. Alice Drummond has actually been in a lot of TV shows and movies, particularly New York productions. She's in your Equalizers and Law and Orders and Spin Cities. Spin City, actually filmed in New York. Huh. But my understanding is she spent most of her career on stage, off and on Broadway. As Alice pushes the cart away, Watch the last man walking across the foreground, the man with the beard. That's producer Joe Medjuk. And movie magic, everyone. We've suddenly crossed America and are now in the basement of the Los Angeles Public Library. Hey, speaking of Alice Drummond, she holds a unique place in the movie as being one of the few minor characters they flew out to L.A. So there's the entire main cast, of course. There's the police captain and con ed worker in the firehouse scenes. And that's it. So Ms. Drummond here is the only actor without a firehouse scene at all, but was filmed on both sides of the country. Anyway, about the Los Angeles Central Library now. Built in 1926, this is rather funny and awful. It kind of sucked as a library, in the physical sense. The architect got all fancy and had all the books tucked away, so there's a reason the basement stacks were packed like this. Most of the public couldn't access the books themselves. Eh, you almost always needed to ask an employee to assist you. Not long after this movie, in April of 1986, there was a fire that damaged the building and a huge collection of the books. At least this caused the library to do a lot of renovating, and now the basement doesn't look like this anymore. They got all the stacks out of there. The books floating by is a neat trick. They're just on wires. Effective, because even on the clearest pictures, I still don't see the wires. And speaking of not being able to see... I tried to identify these books, but I couldn't do it. I don't have a 4K TV, but I doubt that would even make a difference. Well, the third book appears to be turquoise with a yellow diagonal stripe. The hunt is on, fans. Who will be the first person to identify that book floating by in Ghostbusters? Some of the simplest effects are often the best. The cards fly out by blowing air through the backs of the card catalogs. Hey, do you remember card catalogs? Those were the days. The weird rising and falling sounds played here are, again, the DX7 synthesizer. I like it how Alice turns this way and that through the stacks. Of course, I don't know the layout down there, but you'd think going in a straight line to the nearest stairs would be better than getting lost. But of course, that's the point. Even the audience gets confused by the space in this moment. And cue Ray Parker Jr. and the logo getting animated. It's a fun way to start the movie, and the whole setup, from Columbia Pictures' logo to the Ghostbusters title, took a little under two and a half minutes. Again, great song. We all love it. What I like is that it was intended for the montage, but Ivan liked it so much he put quick hits of it here and the end of the movie. He knew what would get the audience going. Also again discussing the name, we'll talk about deciding exactly on Ghostbusters later, 
but I want to point out that we're so used to the title, we don't even register that it's a joke anymore. Like, what else is called Busters? Gangbusters, I suppose, but that's an old reference. No, like Dustbuster, just invented in 1979. Roachbusters, Bugbuster. Ghostbusters sounds a little cool, but it's supposed to be more funny than cool, and now we mostly just take it for granted. It's like the Beatles, or the B-Sharps. The transition from the library to Columbia University's campus here is actually really clever. You might not realize, but here we're looking from the steps of Columbia University's Low Library. That's who it's named after, University President and New York City Mayor Seth Lowe. So the movie began outside the New York Public Library, and now we're outside Columbia's library. Ah, clever if you're familiar with New York. And of course, we have another statue, the back of the head of Alma Mater, or Nourishing Mother. That's right, the phrase that means the school you graduated from actually represents a goddess. Alma Mater is probably the same as Ceres, by the way, which makes sense since Ceres is the goddess of agriculture. If you're not going for the masculine Prometheus, who steals fire, Ceres, or Alma Mater, is really the mother of human sciences and learning. If you see Alma Mater from the front, she's holding a staff in her right hand and has an open book on her lap. She's bronze and was designed by Daniel Chester French and installed in 1903. French is the same sculptor who created the giant Lincoln Memorial statue in Washington. Oh, also, apparently Alma Mater was originally gilded in real gold. You'd think people would try peeling that off, which, uh, probably happened. The gold was entirely removed in 1950. Oh geez, and relevant to 2020 once again, in 1970 there was civil unrest. Remember the Kent State and Jackson State shootings? College students all over the states were fighting racism. In 68, after Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, students occupied buildings at Columbia, including the library, until they were violently cleared out by police. They were fighting against racism, fighting against a segregated gymnasium Columbia was building, and the Vietnam War. Seriously, if you want to see history repeat itself, read up on the Columbia University protests of 1968. Anyway, hey, can you tell I teach history? Anyway, an echo of those protests happened in 1970, when someone detonated a bomb at Alma Mater's base, destroying part of the throne. It was eventually taken away and repaired, and put back into place in 1978. So this is an important statue for Columbia University, and when they shot Ghostbusters in late 83, Alma Mater had only been back in its spot for five years. And hey, once again we ask, what if statues could come alive? There is no Weaver Hall at Columbia. That plaque was just stuck on the outside of the building. I have to think that they named it after Sigourney Weaver. I mean, why else would they, right? Sigourney was the most important weaver on this film. And we've got a door to the guy's office. As a kid, I never really paid full attention that the door hanger from a hotel is supposed to show that these guys are kooky. Oh, you guys, you're so nutty you want a hotel maid to come clean up your lab. More importantly, the Venkman burn in hell. So we've had they're here to save the world as part of the advertising campaign. That's a joke on Poltergeist. This and Dana floating above her bed later are both kind of making fun of the exorcist. Venkman burn in hell is supposed to suggest the line, your mother sucks. <laughs> yeah, in hell. Look, I live a PG life, everybody. The words painted in red here, I'm not offended by it or anything, but I actually think it's a dud or a misstep. 
since this is a PG movie, they're not going to use the real Exorcist line, so for years I never caught on what it's supposed to be a reference to. It also raises some questions, like, who did this? Obviously some student hates Peter Venkman. Huh. Anyway, I'm suggesting this little bit is confusing and not funny, but we quickly forget about it. This office scene was filmed on the Columbia University campus, not L.A., I believe what happened was they had this room to shoot in case of inclement weather. If it rained while they were shooting on campus, they could keep going by moving into this room. But it never rained on them for the exterior scenes, and since they still had the campus booked, they took advantage of the situation and filmed these scenes here while they had the opportunity. Jennifer Runyon plays the one student. I love her hair. I can't tell if she's actually wired up for electric shocks. If she isn't, that fits in with the whole idea of Venkman being an awful person and scientist, not conducting the experiment in good faith at all. I think this is far and away Runyon's most famous role, but she's had bit parts in Who's the Boss and Magnum P.I. and Murder, She Wrote. Lots of good stuff. Oh, by the way, the Chicago Boys, Harold Ramis and Bill Murray, might have listened to Jennifer's dad on the radio. Her father, Jim Runyon, was a radio DJ, and from 1965 on, he was in Chicago for a few years. Harold would have been 21 and might have missed Jim Runyon entirely, but Bill Murray was 15, so he probably heard her dad on the radio. And we meet Bill's character, Peter Venkman. I'll talk about him more in a moment. Stephen Tash is the other student. Again, this is definitely his most famous role. Now here's a few things that most Ghostbusters fans are already familiar with, so bear with me, you folks. Venkman is using Zenner cards, created by Carl Zenner and J.B. Rhein in the 1930s to test extrasensory perception. Quelle surprise, nobody has ever proven anything with these cards. There's a great joke I keep hearing people figuring out after multiple viewings. So Stephen Tash is almost succeeding at the test, but Venkman cares so little he doesn't notice. Stephen guesses a square, then Jennifer's card following is a circle. Then Stephen guesses a circle but his card was a square. Then to top it all off, the moment that breaks Steven's character is when he correctly guesses wavy lines, but Venkman still shocks him. So Steven guessed three cards correctly, but only one in the right moment. This is a principle of clairvoyance, or to put another way, psychics try to excuse their mistakes with the idea that ESP fudges the past and present a little bit. So Steven might be psychic, but he guessed three cards correctly, just two at the wrong instant. It's a fun little joke. By the way, some jokes at Jennifer's expense. She guesses a star after seeing a star, the idea that she's easily suggestible. You even see Steven scoff at this, thinking it's dumb to guess a star after just seeing it. Peter's first comment to her is also to make a mean joke. He says, clear your head. Get it? It's a dumb blonde joke. Speaking of that, as a more innocent child, I could tell that Peter was trying to cozy up to this girl. I thought that he was probably trying to set up a date with her. But now, what with him getting so frustrated at Ray for interrupting what he's trying to do and asking him to return in an hour and a half? I think he's trying to set up sex with her right then. He's trying to work on her fast. Venkman's a despicable character. And Dan Aykroyd comes in as Ray Stance. Very enthusiastic. I like his video camera. My dad used to have one like it. I'm going to talk more about the main characters once they meet up with Egon. Ray says 10 people saw the ghost but only the librarian ends up mattering. The mass sponge migration line was added in later. Audio dialogue replacement, or ADR. 
I like it that as much as Aykroyd believes in the supernatural, he wasn't above including a line like that, which makes Ray sound like an overly enthusiastic nut over supposed supernatural things. Here we go, Harold Ramis as Egon, and he has a stethoscope to the table. That says so much about him right there. And here, now is when I wanted to talk about the core leads and their introductions. This movie has fantastic introductions for these guys. We saw Peter not care about his scientific experiment and instead flirt with the co-ed. That tells you everything you need to know about Venkman. We saw Ray come in super excited about the possibility of a ghost. And here, in my favorite intro, Egon has a stethoscope to a table. That tells you what kind of person he is. We're a few minutes into the movie and we know who these personalities are. Compare this to Stripes. Those aren't bad intros either, but you don't entirely know what John Winger's deal is until he spars with the lady in his taxi cab. Winger loses his car, his girlfriend leaves him. You know he's not doing well, but it takes until the push-up scene and talking about the army for us to entirely get John Winger's deal. Meanwhile, Russell Ziski teaches his class, but messes around with him in song. Then he needs to meet up with John for you to realize he's still more responsible than John. Those are pretty good introductions, like B+. But those took several scenes to get going. Here, we immediately get these guys, boom, boom, boom. And they're all funny, too. This is what we're talking about when we say Ghostbusters is firing on all cylinders. That Egon introduction in particular is one of my favorites in cinema. It's so funny and informative. And the trio are off and running. Or, you know, briskly walking. There's a joke that Egon once tried to drill a hole into his own head. Unless it's totally out of left field, it's probably a reference to trepanning, or trephination. This refers to any time you drill into a human skull, which you might want to do for surgery or to relieve intracranial pressure in case of an emergency. But, but, Egon here would be referring to a quack science where you drill a hole into your head to change the blood flow in your brain, I guess? The dodgy science is you're supposed to be smarter after doing this. Do not do this, everybody. Trepanning is definitely something that Dan Aykroyd would know about, and right here it makes for a joke. It also adds to that introduction of Egon, that he's inquisitive and all about knowledge, but studies dodgy science instead of the good stuff. Actor John Rothman introduces himself as Roger Delacorte. John Rothman is another New York actor, which means he also does a lot of stage acting. And he did Law and Orders, all as different characters, which is funny. NYPD Blue and Blue Bloods. Man, are all the New York shows cop dramas? Okay, John Rothman might be the most amazing connection, the biggest coincidence of a connection in all of Ghostbusters. See, John has a younger brother, Tom Rothman. Starting in 1987, Tom Rothman was an executive during the tumultuous years at Columbia Pictures. Huh, small world, right? While starting in 1994, Tom Rothman worked his way up at 20th Century Fox and became co-chairman there in 2000. Tom Rothman greenlit the X-Men movies, the Ice Age movies, The Devil Wears Prada, Avatar, tons of things. Including Jason Reitman's Juno. But the world keeps getting even smaller. After Sony Pictures was hacked, probably causing Amy Pascal to leave as chairperson, Tom Rothman became the new chair at Sony Pictures, starting in 2015. Let me summarize that again. So the actor here is John Rothman. And totally by coincidence, his brother Tom Rothman is now in charge of the Ghostbusters franchise. Tom Rothman greenlit Jason Reitman's Juno, and now Ghostbusters Afterlife. So that's the Rothman brothers, everybody. 
two men who both have connections to Ghostbusters, decades apart. By the way, for all you film nerds, Tom Rothman's wife is Jessica Harper. You know, Suspiria's Jessica Harper. Yeah. Oh, back to John Rothman, so focusing on the actor himself. I mentioned all these facts on Twitter to Dave Babbitt of the Filmstrips podcast. Be sure to check it out. But I told this to Dave Babbitt and my good internet friend, Laura Summer, original voice of the real Ghostbusters Janine. She gave us another great connection. Laura Summer is like the one actor on Real Ghostbusters who's actually from New York, and she studied acting with John Rothman. They both studied in New York in the prestigious Michael Howard studio. So Laura Summer took classes with this actor, John Rothman. Cool. Thanks, Laura. And I'll say it here. Thanks to Laura for recording at the start of the podcast. You can follow her on Twitter at LoveThatLaura. Alice is laid out on the table. The menstruation joke seems a little bit mean to me, just because she looks older. Originally, the librarian was going to be a bit younger, so that joke might have made more sense then. Peter Venkman's, back off man, I'm a scientist, is one of the jokes fans latch onto and sometimes repeat. It's not the most used catchphrase from the movie, but sometimes it used to show up on shirts or posters and things, and it'd be switched to, back off man, I'm a ghostbuster. Oh, and Alice says her uncle thought he was St. Jerome, which is a pretty on-the-nose choice for the character. Jerome is the saint of librarians, archivists, and translators. According to tradition, Jerome translated much of the Bible to Latin. I guess Alice comes from a family of librarians. And back downstairs, and back to Los Angeles we go. This scene with the guys was filmed November 30th, 1983. I know this thanks to a scan of the call sheet on the LA Public Library's website. It's kind of interesting to think that we're early in the movie, but the guys, the real actors, have already filmed scenes of them outside 55 Central Park West with the crowd chanting Ghostbusters. They've done all that heroic, big stuff with a crowd, but now they need to show how the Ghostbusters start out. Symmetrical book stacking! See, I like Ray's enthusiasm here over something so trivial. This was a spur-of-the-moment Ivan Reitman idea, by the way. It goes to show Dan Aykroyd isn't above making fun of his own enthusiasm for just unusual things, for little hints of the supernatural. By the way, Ray doesn't seem to be alluding to anything, even with skewed information. He doesn't seem to be alluding to any real-world event in Philadelphia in 1947. We see ectoplasm for the first time, introducing this idea to most of the world. But before that, let's talk about what they used in the movie. It's called methyl cellulose, and has dozens, if not hundreds, of uses. It's prescribed as a laxative. There you go, everyone. Take Ghostbuster slime if you ever need to go. Huh. It, uh, comes in pills or dehydrated powder when you ingest it. In fact, you might already be taking it. Since it breaks down in the human body, in its dehydrated form, it's one choice for pill capsules. It's also a choice for goopy things like shampoos, though I think it's not the most common choice for shampoos. Oh, and not that Sigourney Weaver gets slimed in this movie, but she's in another series that features it. All the drool and slime in the Alien movies is methylcellulose. But let's talk about ectoplasm as a concept now. If you're like me and grew up watching Slimer, you might just accept the idea now that some ghosts are slimy. But this is a bit more interesting than I realized. First off, the name. See, even growing up, I could deconstruct the word ecto, as an exterior, and plasm, like a very thick liquid. I know, I know, scientists usually focus on plasmas as ionized gases, but we're not actually talking hard science here today. We're talking about plasm as a goop. Here's the deal with ectoplasm. 
When spiritualists used to hold seances, one idea was that a ghost would need a host body to possess a medium. That's a familiar concept, right? Except just talking like you're possessed sometimes isn't enough. So the idea of ectoplasm is that it would extrude out of a human orifice, usually conveniently covered by a cloth, and then a blobby mass would come out and speak as a ghost. Growing up, I always thought ectoplasm meant it was the exterior of a ghost, but that's not the etymology. It's ecto, exterior, because it's outside a human body. Traditionally, spirits themselves aren't supposed to be slimy on their own. They're only slimy because they're coming out of a human body. Ah, that's gross. Venkman's lines, somebody blows their nose and you want to keep it, and then Egon, your mucus. That's not Peter just comparing the slime to mucus. It almost literally is supposed to be mucus. When Peter gets slimed in the hotel, the old spiritualist way of thinking is that slime or slime is supposed to come from a human body. It's way more gross than we were all assuming. Okay, okay, I've made my point, but I also don't want to give the totally wrong impression. I say all this, and yes, ectoplasm is supposed to be coming out of a nose or something, but spiritualists would also insist ectoplasm, strictly speaking, is not the same thing as mucus. It's unique unto itself, and can only exist when a ghost is trying to use a human as a medium. Also, very conveniently, ectoplasm is supposed to be incredibly fragile. It disappears when exposed to light, it disappears when a ghost leaves or when anyone touches it. Huh, almost sounds as if this isn't very scientific and ectoplasm isn't something that can really be collected or studied by scientists. Google around for ectoplasm in old-timey photos. It's a lot of people using cloth and goop, sometimes connected to dolls so the dolls can be animated by the g-g-g-ghost. I feel kind of bad for people like Arthur Conan Doyle, author of Sherlock Holmes stories, who was a big spiritualist and talked up seeing ectoplasm during seances. He just loved this stuff. So, we will leave the topic. But yes, ectoplasm is way grosser than you might have first suspected. Also, while Ghostbusters popularized this idea, it was a very niche concept to Supernatural fans before this movie, but Dan Aykroyd especially helped make the idea famous, but it's interesting to me that he would have known he was changing the rules of what ectoplasm is. Ectoplasm was only supposed to be connected to human mediums. When you saw a ghost like the librarian, floating at a distance on its own, nobody used to think there was anything slimy to those versions of ghosts. But now you have ghosts like Slimer, and it just becomes a fact of pop culture that some ghosts are all slimy and made out of ectoplasm. Egon breaks out the shoe polisher, I mean the PKE meter. Let's talk about this prop real quick. Google Iona shoe polisher if you want to see it originally. I love that most of these things used to be bright red. It must have been handy for the props department because it did have electrical wiring and they could gut it out. The little screen that Egon looks through, that used to be a spot where you'd put a spinning brush attachment. So basically, these things used to work as low-powered drills. Of course, this prop was used again in Ghostbusters 2, but also They Live and Suburban Commando. Neither of those are Columbia pictures, so it goes to show Columbia was willing to rent out or maybe sell off its props. But, PKE. So within the movie, it's called a psychokinetic energy meter. A good combination of words to try to describe what animates spirits. This is another term Dan Aykroyd would have been familiar with, but it's applied differently here than how Supernatural fans normally use it. So psychokinetic is Greek for soul-moving but it was traditionally applied to a human being exerting mental or spiritual effort to move objects. 
the term psychokinetic has largely been replaced with telekinetic, or moving from a distance. But here it kind of works. I guess the soul or essence of the ghosts is animating their forms now. I see bits of trivia online saying the bookshelf falling down was a freak accident, and Bill just ad-libbing his, this happened to you before? But I can't find the origin of this trivia. Ivan, Joe Magic, and Harold Ramis don't mention it on their 1999 disc commentary, and that would have been a notable accident to them. So I'm of the opinion that if you see that trivia, I think that's wrong. If that's a false wall, something the production already had to work with when doing the card catalog scene, but if that's a false wall behind them, you can even see dots for where the shelf is supposed to be anchored. They could have achieved this trick by having people just push pens or something through those anchor holes. Listen, you smell that? That's a pretty great line. Ray switched senses. It's so weird. It's funny, but it's not like it's really a punchline. He's just saying something weird, which is a recurring motif in this movie. Then there's the piano. That piano trill is all over the movie. We meet the librarian ghost. The actress at the start here is Ruth Oliver, who I don't think was really a professional actress. She only did this and an episode of Trapper John, M.D. Additionally, this is kind of relevant to Ghostbusters. Outside of Dan Aykroyd himself, Ruth Oliver might be the most notable supernatural believer in the film. She believed in astrology and wrote two books on the subject. Neat. But, everyone, Ruth Oliver's daughter was Susan Oliver. Susan Oliver played Vina, the love interest, in the pilot to Star Trek, The Cage. You know, the woman who is captive of the big-brained aliens? Okay, Telosians. Yes, Star Trek fans, I know who the Telosians are, okay? But anyway, Ruth Oliver here, the librarian ghost, is the mother to the original Star Trek love interest. The daughter, Susan Oliver, also directed an episode of M.A.S.H. and Trapper John, M.D., which probably explains why Trapper John was the only other acting credit her mother, Ruth Oliver, ever had. I'm afraid both Ruth Oliver and her daughter Susan passed away, in 88 and 90 respectively. I take so many sidetracks, I know we kind of lose the plot here on the podcast, but that's fine, we're here for an education, everyone. If you wanted to enjoy the movie, you'd just watch it. I love the whole comedy of the three guys with this ghost. I mean, if you encountered a ghost, what would you do? I'll also point out, because plenty of watchers do overlook this, this whole scene gets called back at the end with Gozer. Ray's first plan, both times, are to communicate with the spirit, though here they make Peter try that. But even that gets flipped and becomes a joke at the end of the movie. Here, Ray shouts, Get her! Two frightening results. At the end of the movie with Gozer, Peter says, Go get her, Ray! And then they share a look. That's funny even on its own, but it's also a callback, and Peter getting back at Ray for his plans in this scene. And the librarian transforms into a monster when they try to jump her. All of Ruth Oliver's scenes were filmed on a black stage, almost certainly the same one as for Slimer, and they superimpose her in here. That's one thing about this movie. For all the special effects shots that needed to be completed, at least they didn't need to worry about most of the ghosts looking natural and appearing like they were in the exact same physical space as the rest of the film. They were all, you know, ghosts and transparent and could float and bob and be a bit out of place from their surroundings. The exception to this is the Marshmallow Man, which usually looks pretty good, and also the terror dogs, of course, so it's no wonder that the terror dogs end up looking like the creatures most out of place at times, being solid things that had to be animated into the movie. Yes, Ruth Oliver got filmed, reading and shushing, 
then is more terrifying in a wind machine blowing her clothing, then she transitions to the Bernie Wrightson-inspired puppet. Google Ruth Oliver, and you'll see some photos of her in the pink and purple getup. It's pretty fun, because she's smiling in so many photos, and it looks like she's having fun playing a ghost. The guys are frightened and run away, and the busboy's piano of cleaning up the town cuts in. Again, I like it. The guys were sort of being recognized with the piano, and now this quick piano opening comes in. It works. It holds the movie together. In Violet Ramis Steele's book, Ghostbusters' Daughter, she and her babysitter were watching the scene get filmed, running out of the library. But the problem was her dad, Harold, had so much equipment strapped to him, so things would fly off him and fall to the ground. They did multiple takes, each time taping down more and more of his gear. When they finally got the scene without anything falling off, everyone watching cheered. Speaking of Harold's daughter, I might as well mention this now. During the New York shoot, Harold and his daughter Violet were staying at the Sherry Netherland Hotel, which is at the southeast corner of Central Park. Presumably most, or all, of the cast and major players in the production were staying there as well. I've heard Joe Medjick say he enjoyed waking up in the morning, getting ready, and being able to just walk to the Ghostbusters shooting sites. To give you an idea, the Sherry Netherland Hotel is 20 minutes walking from the library, and even less to get to 55 Central Park West. Did you see it? What was it? We'll get back to you. Or not. I won't belabor this point, but it is interesting. If you were more rigidly following the rules of storytelling, I think you'd have the Ghostbusters come back to the library and capture this ghost. But the library ghost isn't even mentioned again. And I don't think this is bad, but it's quirky. But come to think of it, I do think this maybe influences why the go-getter Ray joke later doesn't register for most people as a callback. The movie is actively ignoring these opening scenes. We understand kind of how the guy's technology works and how ghosts operate now, complete with slime, but otherwise we're forgetting that there's this ghost haunting the library. I like the guys just walking. By the way, one of the more subtle jokes that's just a bit of weirdness, Egon and junk food. Peter hands Egon a crunch bar. It's such an odd thing to make a point of, but then you see Egon with junk food in moments for the rest of the movie, and you can tell it was a whole thing with him. Also, Peter's line, I take back some of the things I said about you. I mean, that's a dig. Peter should say, I take back all the things I said about you, but he's not about to go that far. There's a deleted scene of the guys returning to their office. Peter says he, and he pointedly means himself, could win a Nobel Prize. Ray corrects him and says he and Egon are doing all of the hard work. I like this next bit that a lot of the Ghostbusters fans treat as canon. Peter says he deserves credit because he introduced Ray and Egon to each other. I really like that, and it explains what we already assume is the group dynamic. Ray and Egon were weird in their scientific ways, and Peter was just self-interested, and saw an opportunity leeching off their brain work. Makes him a bit of a parasite, but, you know, there is something to be said about creating situations that foster creativity. That's, that's kind of me wanting to give the most charitable read to the Venkman character. And they are fired. Everybody loves that guy with the headphones as he wheels away that one orange machine. It's very hard to catch, but the ambient music you can hear from the headphones is I Can Wait Forever by the band Air Supply. You can hear it on the soundtrack album. By the way, that orange machine is a Wolverson Angiographic Injector only it's missing the actual injector. So you'd use this machine to inject a contrast agent like iodine into the bloodstream, then use an MRI or CT scan to get a look at the blood vessels or heart. No idea why these guys have it, 
Frankly, it's kind of a waste of resources for them when it could be helping people in a lab or a hospital. Dean Yeager is played by Brooklyn's own Jordan Charney. Man, we're meeting all the New York actors at the start of this movie. Makes sense. Charney played Harry Hunter in the 1976 film Network. Don't remember him? He's the guy with the mustache in the control room. And he was in various Laws and Orders again? Of course he was. I love it. He played three different characters across two Law and Order shows. He was also a warden on... Matlock! Ahem. Get out of here, Grandpa Simpson. Excuse me, Matlock. As of 2020, Mr. Charney is in his 80s, retired, but, knock on wood, still with us. I want to point this out. Dean Yeager isn't that far off from Dean Warmer in Animal House. Think about it. He's a killjoy, a crusty old Dean who doesn't want these guys at his university anymore. If the university content was expanded, I bet we would have had more scenes of Dean Yeager talking about how he loathes the paranormal department. Get them on double secret probation now. And expanding on that killjoy aspect further, I'll point this out right now. There are four characters like this in the movie. There's Dean Yeager. There's the snooty hotel manager. I'm going to include the stiff in the fountain scene, even though he doesn't have any power over the Ghostbusters. And there's the big one, Walter Peck. These are four men in polite society who all want to tell the Ghostbusters no, that what they're doing is worthless, or they're breaking the rules. The Ghostbusters are fighting against these guys, and society's rules, just as much as they'll be zapping and trapping ghosts. Honestly, it'd be kind of neat if you could rework the story somehow to make these figures all kind of one character. I don't think you could do that. Huh. Though I guess if I'm ever going to put on a stage production of Ghostbusters, I'd have one actor play all these roles. There's a thought. And filming back outside. Bill Murray is drinking on a barrier, I believe, outside Kent Hall. As plenty of visitors will tell you, there's metal grating now that prevents you from sitting in the same spot as Murray in the film. Boo, we can't go there anymore. The statue kind of blends into the trees, but if you look between Aykroyd and Murray at the start of the scene, you can see Alma Mater again. So behind Murray is the low library. And hey, look off to the right of Murray as he's seated. Huh, that's a lot of people just standing by that concrete barrier. Not like they're watching a movie being made or anything. Speaking of which, a lot of people on campus sure are just hanging around. Okay, some people look like they're talking together, but then there's a lot of people just hanging out at the fountain. In October. Sure. Einstein did his best stuff when he was working as a patent clerk. So you know, that was in Bern, Switzerland, between 1902 and 1909. And arguably, you can say Venkman is correct here. In 1905, Einstein had his miracle year, where he published four papers that would, over time, alter the entire field of physics. In fact, it was one of these papers on the photoelectric effect that would win him the Nobel Prize years later. You could make a case for Venkman being wrong, though, if you want to say Albert Einstein's greatest achievement was the general theory of relativity, which was finalized in 1915. But still, four foundational papers while working as a patent clerk, yeah, that is impressive. There's Ray's comment, I've worked in the private sector. They expect results. You can just take it at face value, but it's also a dig at academia, right? Oh, wasteful university research doesn't always produce anything of monetary value. Feh. Just before moving on, hey, this is a nice scene, but why is Egon not here? That got me thinking, Peter and Ray share a scene in their office at the start, then here. I guess you could say after Peter is slimed, 
but there aren't any Peter and Egon scenes in the film outside of a phone conversation. Just digging really deep on the mechanics of this movie, we get a bit of the sense that Peter and Ray have been close friends for years. It seems a little bit more difficult to connect with Egon. My point, my point. In one of the movie's more subtle maneuverings, we're set up with the idea that Peter and Ray have a little extra bond, which we'll all get paid off with. See you on the other side, Ray. But we're going to the fictional Manhattan City Bank now. And get this, they're on Fifth Avenue, right across the street from the public library again. If you do a street view on Google Maps, you can even see where they came out of, though it's been renovated since then. You can actually see the concrete fencing for the library on the other side of the street in this tracking shot. There's a blue billboard or cover that I believe is blocking most of the view of the library, but you can barely see some of the library itself to the left of Bill's head at the end of this scene. I am told by the internet that this scene coming out of the bank was done at the end of the shooting day at the library, which would make sense. But the plot. Ray putting up his family's home as collateral, and him having so much affection for it, sure sounds to me like the Ackroyd family home in Canada. I think that's the inspiration here. Here's a good question. How big was the loan they took out? 19% interest? Whoa. You can ask Google this. Technology is great like that. And it told me that the going interest rates in 1983 and 84 was anywhere between 9 and 11.5%. Ray is right. They're getting hosed. But okay, Egon calculated it. By the way, it's a running gag that Egon just always carries a calculator. Calculators used to be more expensive in general, so it's kind of funny to always be walking around punching in numbers. But yes, Egon calculated it to $95,000 for five years in interest payments alone. That's $19,000 a year. Assuming the Ghostbusters went for a standard 30-year loan, which would have finished in 2013 or 2014, by the way, but assuming they opted for 30 years, the guy's business loan was for $100,000. You can check this out for yourself as well. A good place to start is calculator.net and use the loan calculator there. I went there and checked other fans' math, but I also used actual mortgage formulas to prove this to myself. The $100,000 loan gives extra context to Egon's comment about interest payments in five years adding up to $95,000. He's not just picking a large number. He's demonstrating to Ray that in five years, they will need to have paid back almost the entire value of the loan, and they'd still have another 25 more years to go after that. In those first five years, they'd have also barely dented the principal on the loan. By the way, by the way, Egon is being just a little bit inaccurate just to expedite this joke. The actual figure on the interest they'd pay back in five years is 94000 $783.57. So off by a little over $200, but again, this makes for a better joke. So yes, it's a $100,000 loan. By the way, that means in total, interest and principal, the Ghostbusters would need to have paid the bank $572,000 by 2014. Ah, that's almost six times the loan. Whoa. Hey, let's stop and do the Ghostbusters finances right now. Not all of it. So the Ghostbusters are going to be in trouble if they don't start bringing in money fast. But after Slimer, yes, they get lots of business. The question I want to ask for the rest of the movie is, were the Ghostbusters able to pay off their loan? We don't know their overhead, except they went through their bank account by the time they bust Slimer. But let's work with that. Let's say that Slimer is typical, and they charge $5,000 a ghost. 
let's also assume that when Winston joins up, they do a job in, let's say, an hour, and they're working eight hours a day. The movie suggests they're actually working much longer hours than this, but let's stick to the conservative side of things. Just before we meet Walter Peck, Janine will also mention that she's been working for two weeks straight, so no weekends off. So let's put that all together. $5,000 a pop for eight hours, that's $40,000 a day. We know that they were at least that busy for two weeks straight. That's $560,000 just for a two-week period. Remember, the loan was for $100,000. Okay, I'm calling it, everyone. The Ghostbusters were probably able to pay back their loan during the course of the movie. Of course, my math leaves open a lot of variables. Overhead, including expenses and salaries, and I didn't factor in the time it takes driving around the city. Mind you, like I said, it's pretty clear that they're working more than eight hours a day, so I was being conservative with my hours. Still, I think Ray is responsible, and scared, enough that as soon as they had the funds to pay back that loan, he went right back to the bank and paid it off. And hey, the fact that five years later the company was dead, but they still owned the firehouse, demonstrates this is certainly true. Ghostbusters. Yes, we're back. The Ghostbusters are back in theaters, and to celebrate, you can get Ghostbusters 2 items. Have we all gone mad? I guess so, Pete, because that's not all. Why not? You can show support for this podcast and even get a great looking No Ghost Peace logo and 10 Tops trading cards. Check out patreon.com slash rossmayrider. Items available while they last. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. I just needed a break there. How's everybody doing? Keeping up with the math lesson? Everyone, don't take out a loan at 19%. We are introduced to the firehouse, Hook and Ladder 8, in Tribeca. Completed in 1903, it gets its name because the New York fire departments used to be independent, and there used to be a Hook and Ladder Company 8 in the neighborhood. If you watch the Scorsese film Gangs of New York, you'll see that fire companies would often fight each other rather than put out fires. I'm not accusing the old Company 8 of getting into those kind of brawls, I honestly have no familiarity, but that's some of the history New York fire departments are a part of. When the firehouse was built, it actually had two bay doors and was twice as wide. Google Hook Ladder 8 Double 
and you'll see a photograph of the firefighters lined out in front of it. Unfortunately, I haven't found a good photo online of the whole building when it was twice as wide. If you know where to look, please let me know, because I'd love to see it. Just ten years later, so 1913, Varick Street was being widened. Varick Street is to the right of the firehouse. Many buildings were torn down to widen Varick. I mean, just a block north from the firehouse was the beautiful St. John's Chapel, built in 1807, and it was torn down. And just because it was old, don't assume it was quaint. St. John's Chapel had a giant spire, the tallest structure in the neighborhood, and its architect was John McComb, who also co-designed the still-used city hall we see later in the film. I got off track there. But yes, Varick Street was being widened, and the Hook and Ladder 8 building was half-demolished in 1913. Varick Street was finished widening probably in 1918. You're probably familiar with some of the firehouse's more recent history. In the September 11th attacks of 2001, the firefighters from Hook and Ladder 8 were some of the earliest responders to the World Trade Center. In 2011... Mayor Michael Bloomberg planned to close several fire departments, including Hook and Ladder No. 8, but public support for the departments and their existing buildings stopped this. One of the supporters was actor Steve Buscemi, also a former New York firefighter. By the way, Buscemi volunteered in the September 11th attacks as well, but sometimes people erroneously combine all these stories together and say he was volunteering with Hook and Ladder No. 8 after the September 11th attacks. No, he volunteered with his old place, Engine Company 55. But yes, Buscemi did speak out in favor of keeping the departments and their historic buildings, and he attended a press event in front of Hook and Ladder No. 8 in 2011. Gee, I wonder why they chose that building to get public support. Hmm, might be because it was in a very famous New York movie that fans wouldn't want torn down. Maybe. Oh, and today... Hook and Ladder No. 8 celebrates their Ghostbusters connection with custom logos drawn on the sidewalk. They didn't think to ask for the original Ghostbusters sign, but in 89 for the sequel, they were gifted the Ghostbusters 2 sign, which is mounted inside near the entrance now. Also, get this, the vanity license plate on their fire truck is Ecto-1. They got it in New York State. I love it. That's just perfect that they have the actual Ecto-1 as a fire truck inside their place. Now, to the movie. A little detail. The color around the firehouse's door is painted red in this first shot. In the rest of the movie, and today, that area is painted black. I know we see people and cars moving, but I'm suspicious if the graffiti and signs on the firehouse are painted on in this scene. You know, composited in. And more movie magic. We zip weeks later to Los Angeles and Fire Station number 23. Yes, if you weren't aware, the firehouse is really two locations. The exterior really is in New York, and the interiors are an abandoned firehouse in L.A., Fire Station No. 23. Built in 1910, it started out as Los Angeles's entire fire department headquarters. What you might not realize about this L.A. firehouse is it was expensive. Expensive to build in 1910, I mean. Taxpayers were all upset at how fancy it was. This uh, kind of makes sense, given that L.A. fire chiefs knew they would be living in there. Fire Station No. 23 was closed in 1960 and made an historic cultural monument in 66. For decades since then, it's kind of been a sad comedy. L.A. historians and firefighters all know this building is historic, so it should have been restored. Eh, but the neighborhood is poor now, so they're figuring what's the point. That's me using their arguments, by the way. I don't agree with that sentiment. Should we turn it into a L.A. museum? 
Yeah, but we'd get more traffic if we turned an old firehouse in Hollywood into a museum, so we're going to do that instead. So fire station number 23 was in a holding pattern basically since the 60s, which is crazy to think about. Today, it spent more time as a derelict than it has as a working fire station. So it's been in a few movies. All the Ghostbusters movies, most prominently, as well as Big Trouble in Little China, The Mask, and more. As of 2018, the plan now is to renovate Fire Station 23 into an art center for children. You know, that sounds good. The contracted architectural firm Brooks and Scarpa have pictures showing they intend to keep the white and green paint job inside, though there's going to be a lot of other changes. This is also going to make filming Ghostbusters movie there basically impossible going forward. But I'm sure if Columbia ever needs to, they can recreate some pretty convincing sets. And back to the Ghostbusters movie. All the interior firehouse scenes really are filmed at this firehouse in LA. None of them are sets. This includes the basement with the containment unit later, which I found surprising since it's a relatively small room. Thanks to Troy Benjamin of the Interdimensional Crossroad podcast for confirming that for me. Let's go inside. You know, I always wondered how much of the firehouse's dilapidated state was it being the way the production crew found it, and how much of it was them messing it up. I don't know. The real estate agent is played by Rhoda Gemignani. I hope I'm saying her name right. She's a great choice for the movie, because she's an East Coaster who moved out to LA. She'd been on The Bob Newhart Show, The Jeffersons. She would have a recurring role on Who's the Boss in the 90s. Hey, she's in a Seinfeld episode, The Subway. It's where Elaine is stuck on a crowded train that breaks down, and internally she's yelling at everyone around her. Well, just before that happens, Rhoda Gemignani talks to her and gets all judgmental that Elaine is going to a wedding for a lesbian couple. Not cool, fictional character. But, huh, Seinfeld is set in New York. I guess we could say Elaine ran into this realtor. Why not? Maybe Seinfeld and Ghostbusters exist in the same fictional world. Watch Harold Ramis as he leads Bill Murray away in there, talking about all the problems with the firehouse. He bobs his head up and down, like he did several times in Stripes. This is the only time I notice him doing it as Egon. I wonder about this bit. Are Egon and Peter just having a natural, spontaneous conversation here? Or did they coordinate beforehand, agreeing on a strategy to bargain down the price? Either way, it's pretty funny when Ray slides down and his enthusiasm ruins things. Watch right after with Peter and Egon looking at each other. Egon is very slowly shaking his head. It's so slow you might not even notice. Yet another building, the Shandor Building, a.k.a. 55 Central Park West. Later, Egon will suggest that it was probably designed by Ivo Shandor in the 1920s, and that kind of lines up with its actual history of being completed in 1929. In real life, it was designed by the firm Schwartz & Gross, who did a lot of buildings in the area. Huh, a New York architect named Gross. I wonder if Michael C. Gross is any relation. I mean, he was from the New York area as well. It's possible. I'm going to be calling the building 55 Central Park West much of the time, but something you might not even notice, the movie production actually changed the address number, and it's 550 Central Park West in the movie. Sure thing, movie. I read an excerpt from The Sky's the Limit, Passion and Property in Manhattan, written by Stephen Gaines. So of course there is no actual rooftop temple, but there is a penthouse, and Gaines says composer Jerry Herman used to live there. Jerry Herman composed Hello, Dolly, among many other musicals. 
Calvin Klein purchased the penthouse from Herman in 1983, so I believe Calvin Klein was the resident in the penthouse while Ghostbusters was being filmed. Just imagine that, everybody. Instead of Gozer coming out of the top of the Shandor building, it could have been Calvin Klein. That penthouse changed hands a couple times, and Calvin Klein actually bought it back after he had sold it. In 2014, the penthouse was purchased for $33 million. That was by hedge fund manager and Milwaukee Bucks co-owner Mark Lazary, who lives there today. Google 55 Central Park penthouse and check out some of the pictures of how that place looks now. Interesting to me, you know the views of New York? Pretty darn close to that panorama used in the Gozer scenes. Good job, Ghostbusters production. Also, get this, Linda Stein lived in several apartments in 55 Central Park West. In the 70s and 80s, Linda Stein managed musicians like the Ramones, the Pretenders, and Madonna. And way back in the day, Ginger Rogers had an apartment there too. Neat. Okay, enough history. Here's a view down on the street from a stone statue. Hey, yes, that is indeed supposed to be one of the terror dogs looking down. This shot doesn't make much sense because the cars and people should be much smaller. You can also tell the statue is superimposed. Watch as the taxi drives underneath, air quotes, underneath the head of the statue. Pause if you need to. The image of the statue is just a little translucent, so you can still see the taxi drive through it. Hey, I like this music. A cello and the Ohm Martinal. It must be Dana Barrett, played by Sigourney Weaver. Ivan Reitman tells this story a lot. She read up on the part and then for her audition, got on all fours and growled and acted out being a dog. Ivan talks about this being so surprising and funny, but he knew she would be game for the movie. And we meet Louis Tully, played by Rick Moranis. Previously, I had mentioned John Candy not getting the part. Here's a quote I want to read from 2014, Ivan Reitman in Esquire's An Oral History of Ghostbusters. Quote, I remember calling John Candy, and he started pitching me his idea for Lewis. He wanted to play him as a German guy with a bunch of dogs. I think he was looking for a starring role at this point in his life, and he wasn't particularly enthusiastic about being in the movie. And we didn't want any more dogs. We thought that would be confusing. So we decided to pass, which really hurt. End quote. Okay, I have a different opinion on this than Ivan Reitman. Lewis's nerdy personality, his character quirks of being a health and fitness nut, the way he's so proud of being an accountant, but also so tactless and cheap, saying the price of everything. That's all Rick Moranis. He brought all of that to the table. This makes me want to ask, who was Lewis Tully on the page? Well, he's a womanizer. That still carries over that he's so interested in Dana but he's more of a lame ladies' man, hitting on women at his party. That, that just might be it on the page. Here's my argument. Rick Moranis is the MVP of the movie. He's crafting his lines even more than Bill Murray. He makes Lewis Tully work, which we'll get to in a moment. So the flip side of that, I believe that the Lewis Tully scenes were probably the weakest material that Dan and Harold wrote down. They wanted a neighbor to hit on Dana, and they also wanted a scene where the terror dog is in Lewis's apartment, and he gets confused and thinks a guest has brought a dog. In the finished movie, okay, who brought the dog, is just throwing a coat and a line, but I think in earlier drafts that was probably a bigger element, or maybe the only joke element to that scene. 
What I'm getting at here is I don't think John Candy was totally off base with his suggestions. The Lewis Tully stuff was just a gag with dogs, and probably didn't really connect or make sense as jokes. So Candy was talking to his pal Reitman saying, okay, what if I play a German? Remember, almost everybody involved is coming from sketch comedies where you play a variety of broad characters. So Candy is pitching, what if I'm an over-the-top German man, and I have these big German shepherds, and then I get my big dogs confused with these big demon dogs that you have in this movie, right? Does that sound unfunny? Yeah, it doesn't sound great to me, but I'm defending John Candy here. I don't think the Lewis Tully scenes were written very funny. That's my belief. I think this is backed up with Sigourney Weaver's audition, too. Ivan talks about being impressed and scared that Sigourney would howl and pretend to be a dog, and then he lightly embarrasses her, like, it's funny that she didn't understand the dogs were going to be puppets. Well, how was she to know that if it wasn't spelled out on the page? I don't think the script was clear on the jokes, on this plot, and even what the terror dogs would be in the scripts. Dan and Harold didn't write down, these are going to be puppets. Look, I know Ivan Reitman isn't being especially mean, but I do think he's being a bit unfair to Sigourney Weaver for not understanding the terror dogs on paper, and he's unfair to John Candy as well. All John Candy was trying to do was to flesh out this more nebulous concept of a neighbor who mistakes monsters for dogs. Candy's ideas probably weren't the right ones, but this is the exact same situation as what happened with Rick Moranis coming on. Yes, the flip side, talking about Rick Moranis' performance. This all means his on-the-fly script doctoring really is fantastic. We'll still go scene by scene later, but first off, how much he pines for Dana Barrett. It could come off as more gross from a different actor, but Moranis is so small, and he looks like a foot shorter than Dana, but the way he walks and moves makes him even seem more non-threatening. So we're not really grossed out by him. And then the dumb details. I've said before, we already know who the Ghostbusters are so far, but here we also know this guy Lewis, a guy who will play a workout tape on Fast Forward to get a quicker workout, a guy who offers mineral water and makes a point of saying he won't buy brand name aspirin. One of my favorite bits is how he's so tactless at his party, having a great time but telling people they're his clients and not his friends so he can write off the expense. I mean, go ahead and do that, but don't tell everyone. Or the way he tells everyone about Ted and Annette Fleming's finances. He's so cheerful about it, it's perfect. So I'm calling it. Maybe you prefer one of the Ghostbusters characters? Everyone finds Bill Murray so entertaining, and I've met more than a few women with crushes on Harold Ramis's Egon. But if I was handing out acting awards to just this cast, I'm giving the Oscar to Rick Moranis. Dana's TV was turned on. I love it that there are still these low-stakes indications of haunting before we ramp things up. This makes it convenient for her to see the Ghostbusters TV commercial. Hey, this filmed scene is well documented. Go to the official Ghostbusters YouTube page and you can see outtakes for filming this. Really, they're not actually outtakes so much as alternate takes. They try the names of Ghost Stoppers, Ghost Blasters. You can tell they're gunning for Ghostbusters by this point, though, because the clapperboard they're using says Ghostbusters on it. Something was not filmed, though. In the scripts, the Ghostbusters even had a little jingle, and it went something like this. If you have a ghost, but you don't want to play host, they can be bad house guests and all-night pests. You can't sleep at all, so who do you call? Ghostbusters. Doesn't quite have the same rhythm as Ray Parker Jr.'s song, does it? 
I will also say, it having who do you call, I'm still wondering what all Ivan Reitman and people showed to Ray Parker Jr. To my knowledge, this little jingle idea wasn't filmed, but Ray Parker Jr. did see this TV ad we see in the movie. I wonder if Ivan or someone might have talked about the jingle idea, including that line, so who do you call? Changes later to, who you gonna call? Hmm, a possibility. Before or after the Ghostbusters commercial, we were also supposed to get a commercial starring my favorite guy, the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. I believe the idea was for an animated character dancing around the table, as opposed to, say, reusing the Marshmallow Man costume and trying to repurpose it as something small. The Stay Puft commercial was something they absolutely ran out of time for. And you know what? That's something I really wish was in the movie now. The Marshmallow Man at the end is still very funny, but I think he deserves a better setup. Just seeing something, maybe 20 seconds, and you don't realize it would come to life later? Yes, yes, everyone points out there's a faded Stay Puft ad painting on a building, and Dana is going to have a bag of marshmallows here in the kitchen, but nobody ever notices those things on a first viewing. So if we were doing Ross May's extended cut of the movie, I'd want to include an 80s appropriate animated cartoon with a little marshmallow man here. Dana takes out her groceries, and we see her bag of Stay Puft brand marshmallows. Speaking of them, you ever wonder why Puft is spelled like that in the movie? It should be Puft, with an E-D at the end, like Puffed Wheat. Oh well, I guess it's distinctive branding, like Fruit Loops not spelling fruit correctly. The eggs jumping and cooking is a fun trick, and I love all these practical solutions. Get someone underneath there to pop the eggs out, and have a cooking surface underneath her countertop. Dana opens the fridge and meets Zool. Hi, Zool. We also get a look inside Zool's mouth. Looks like she's got a light bulb stuck in the back of her throat. This is even more apparent when you're watching a Blu-ray today. I believe the Zool voice here, and also coming out of Dana's mouth later, and the Slimer screams and grunts are all Ivan Reitman's voice going through some audio trickery. Back to the firehouse, everybody. Hey, I wanted to mention this. Look at that black molding just above the doors. It's painted all in black. That's actually called a cartouche. I just want to point that out, that if you see modern photographs of Hook and Ladder number 8 today, they painted that cartouche in a very nice gold, so it stands out today. And there's the sign reading Ghostbusters. If you look, there's a long gray piece of probably plywood covering the words Hook and Ladder number 8, and running all along there. Ray rolls up with the Ectomobile. Sorta. The Ectomobile, or Ecto-1 as I usually call it. Come on, I'm one of the cartoon kids. The car is a 1959 Cadillac Miller Meteor Futura Duplex. It's a combination car, something I wasn't really familiar with. Apparently, combination cars were privately owned, usually by funeral homes. If you lived in a little town somewhere or in a suburb, it would take a long time for a regular ambulance to come get you, then drive you all the way back to a hospital in the city. You don't want to be waiting around for an ambulance. Instead, the town's funeral home might have a combination car that'll come get you much faster and get you over to the hospital. And uh, if things don't go well, they'll come get you from the hospital and take you back to their place. Convenient, I guess. So yeah, if someone asks if Ecto-1 is supposed to be a hearse or an ambulance, the answer is always yes. But this particular car... This is not the same car from the rest of the movie. It's pretty well documented. In Illinois, former paramedic Roger Bay purchased this Cadillac in 1982. 
just a year later, and Columbia was calling around for this model of car, so he rented it to their production. This car had a white top and a red body, and they painted it this patchy flat black. Roger Bay went over to New York and got to check out the other car, the actual Ectomobile, with all the gear. Roger Bay also got to watch the scenes with Sigourney Weaver and Bill Murray outside Lincoln Center. So sounds like Roger Bay became an early fan of Ghostbusters, having an idea about it before most people. Oh, he also says that in June of 84, he took his car to a drive-in that played Ghostbusters. I'm sure not a lot of people understood the significance of his badly painted black car at first, but they understood after watching this scene. Roger Bay says he later sold this car to another person in Illinois, and now fans don't know what became of it. By the way, if you'd like to see the pictures of his car, Google Roger Bay Ghostbusters. He has a good old GeoCities page, last updated in 2005. I'm glad it's still up. To the movie. Ray spent $4,800 on the car, and who knows how many thousands in repairs. That's a lot when you're eating through your $100,000 loan. Back to Inside the Firehouse in L.A. That photo in the background is from Inside Fire Station 23, taken in 1915. They've got two horses ready to go. That's something. I used to work at a museum converted from my town's old firehouse, built in 1912, so of the same vintage as the ones we're seeing in the movie. It was built with horses in mind, and they had a rig so they could quickly lower harnesses onto the horses. This kind of makes you understand why the buildings in the movie look like they have so little room for big fire engines. Because they're not designed for big fire engines. They were designed with horses and water pumpers in mind. Google Fire Station 23, 1915 if you want a better look at the photo yourself. Two men are just hanging from the fire poles, which is fun. Hey, there's even a fun sequel to this photo that a lot of Ghostbusters fans probably overlook. From the 1950s or 1960s, some firefighters were familiar with the 1915 photo, so they all recreated it, but with their fire truck in the place of the horses. They've got two guys hanging from the poles again. Ah, I love it when you discover people found something fun to do, in this case, recreate an even older photograph. And we are introduced to Janine Melnitz, played by Annie Potts. She grew up in Tennessee and Kentucky, but had a friend from New York, so she's basically doing an impression of her friend's accent. Oh, I want to talk about costuming and then circle back to Annie Potts. The lead costume designer on Ghostbusters was Theone Aldridge, who was very famous for her work in movies. She had already won an Oscar for her costumes in the 1974 version of The Great Gatsby, but of course she was also very New York, very Broadway-centric costumer. According to Ghostbusters Ultimate Visual History, Aldridge and Sigourney Weaver hit it off and liked the same kinds of clothes. They were also both very tall women, so Aldridge just goes, I'm going to dress you like me. So all those scarves and sweaters are really Aldridge's own New York look. A similar thing happened with Theone Aldridge's assistant costumer, Susie Benzinger. On 2020's Reunited Apart Roundtable with Josh Gad, Annie Potts says that before she had filmed a scene, she showed up to the set, to the exterior of the firehouse. So she was thinking she was just going to watch that day because she wasn't called for filming, but Ivan saw her and said, Oh great, you're here. Let's put you in. And she panicked a little because she didn't have a wardrobe yet. But Susie Benzinger was there, and they dressed Potts similar to Benzinger, and Potts just took Benzinger's glasses off her face. Watch how often Janine doesn't wear her glasses in the movie, because it's really Annie Potts trying to see again. Speaking of Susie Benzinger really quickly, she also went shopping with Harold Ramis, and they got that gray suit he wears in this movie from a thrift store. 
they couldn't get slime or anything on it because they only had the one. I love it that Harold just kind of took on Egon's fashion going forward after this movie. Harold used to have really big glasses and lots of hair. Go look at pre-Ghostbusters photos of Harold Ramis. He often leans more towards the Russell Ziski look he had in Stripes. But Harold and Susie went shopping for his character, and Benzinger picked out his smaller round glasses for Egon, and he'd just wear that style for years going forward. I don't know who gave him that haircut, keeping it shorter at the sides but still nice and high. It's funny that Harold's experience on Ghostbusters kind of affected the way he looked for years. He was even aware that his new hairstyle was rather distinctive. When he married a second time in 1989 and was walking down the aisle, Bill cracked a joke like, Isn't his hair just lovely? Of course Bill Murray would say something like that at a wedding. I think Harold Ramis and Susie Benzinger made a little connection while shopping for his clothes. So she ended up influencing his look for several years, and she did costumes for his 1986 film, Club Paradise. Janine is reading People magazine, dated January 23, 1984 with Cher on the cover. All you cosplayers need to up your game and get that issue. I think the bug-eyed comments are a Bill Murray ad-lib. It might be extra funny because Bill knows those aren't Annie Potts' own glasses. I'll be in my office is funny when you get a better understanding that his office isn't closed and it's just several feet away from Janine's desk. And I love Egon coming out from under her desk. He was just down there the entire time. See, that's a joke that really lands and it's followed up so great with her pitching herself hard to nerdy Egon. She also plays racquetball. Do you have any hobbies? I haven't been talking about it much, because we're covering enough already today on the podcast, but there's an undercurrent of sexual desires throughout this whole movie. When you're a kid, or if you just read the plot summary of the film, that might not really come across. But you've got Lewis pining for Dana, only to have his dreams fulfilled when they're possessed by demons, Peter smitten with Dana, Janine having the hots for Egon, which I like, otherwise this would be a lot of men just lusting after ladies. There's... Uh, there's Ray and a certain ghost coming up. I just bring this all up now to point out that none of the sexual flirtations and tensions are strictly needed in the plot, but these are still folks coming from National Lampoon, and they're familiar with making jokes about wanting sex, being turned down for sex, here's a comedic sexual situation... Just another component to the film that, as I said, a simple plot summary might not make clear. I collect spores, molds, and fungus. Again, that's so weird and in keeping with this hyper-nerd Egon. Hey, is that also a reference to psychedelics? The idea that Egon collects mushrooms for that purpose, if even just to study them? I'm not sure. Speaking of sexual tension earlier, Dana Barrett walks in. As she comes in, look to the left of the car. You'll see a can of Diet Coke resting on a drawer, and a regular Coke can farther to the left. Man, if this happens enough in the movie, you might think that Coca-Cola owned the movie or something. Eh, people have noticed this. When Bill Murray jumps over that little gate, don't watch him. Check out to the left of the filing cabinets. There's someone crouched down behind the cabinets. Is that someone just working on the set? Eh, if we really want to explain it away, maybe Egon is crouching down everywhere, working on things. You know, we've been diving into pseudosciences, ghosts and ectoplasm and psychic powers. It was probably unintentional, but I like it that they're giving Dana even something related to a polygraph test. That's basically pseudoscience right there as well. Aren't polygraphs only like 60% effective? Egon and Ray will look up Zool in the usual literature. 
Spate's Catalog and Tobin Spirit Guide. That's shades of H.P. Lovecraft and the fictional Necronomicon. Even the names Zool and Gozer are like made-up Lovecraft monsters, like Cthulhu or Shoggoths. Again, while Ghostbusters' supernatural content all seem to be of a piece, it's actually kind of novel that they're marrying end-of-the-world alien gods to the more traditional ghosts and hauntings. I like the guys' lab upstairs. Check out their stereo setup and record collection against one wall. Notice again that Egon is holding some snacks. Cheez-Its. Yeah, Ray takes some too, but they're setting up that Egon is the snacks guy. Murray does a lot of ad-libbing, but I like to think, I'll take Miss Barrett back to her apartment and check her out, and then blinks and corrects himself. I like to think that was a slip of the tongue that just really worked. Notice the cut to Sigourney's face. She might be reacting to what Bill said, but it's also possible that it's just clever editing, that they cut in a shot of her looking up where she happens to look annoyed. Here we go, the Dana and Peter apartment scene. For all the moments in this movie with ghosts or the guys, this one is a real standout of improvisation, of acting, and a touch of weirdness. I think part of the reason this scene works so well is that Dana seems so reserved and a bit pissed off, and I think that is really sold because it's Sigourney Weaver honestly not knowing what Bill is about to pull next. I mean, it starts right out with him edging her out of the door, going into her closet, tickling the piano keys, all these weird diversions that just don't matter. If you're watching a high-def version of the film, try watching Bill's face after he looks into her bedroom. What a crime, he says. But that doesn't match his mouth moving. Maybe they looped in what a crime because it was funnier, or maybe what he said on set was a little too over the line. Speaking of lines, Dan and Harold wrote down that Dana would compare Peter to a car salesman. She suggested he's more like a game show host, which is a good call. Oh, Peter's device what fans often refer to as a ghost sniffer, isn't a made-up prop. It's a Bacharach Sniffer 300, which detects combustible gases. Since we only see it in this scene in the movie, and also the Ghostbusters commercial where Ray is wearing it, but in only those two scenes, I have to wonder if Egon gave Peter this one because it's something Peter can't screw up. Maybe he takes the air samples back to the firehouse, and Egon can actually check things there. Part of what amazes me about this scene is how well it works, despite the fact that A. Peter is being a creep. Like, Dana should throw him out way earlier. A monster living in her fridge? Scary, but this guy is way out of line. But even that aside, my second, my B point, is that Peter is totally acting like he doesn't believe her place is haunted. Right? He's tickling keys and talking to the room. When Peter opens the fridge, he's making fun of Dana, making her think for a moment he's seeing what she saw earlier, only to make fun that she has some junk food. Frankly, if he hadn't seen a ghost at the start of the movie, you'd assume from his behavior that Peter still doesn't believe in ghosts. It's a weird way to play things. Oh, by the way, with the Coke cans in the fridge, in his book, Who is Michael Ovitz, Ovitz claims he's the one who recommended they put the Coke cans inside her fridge. Okay, Mike. Notice they make sure you can see a Coca-Cola side and another can showing the reverse with the word Coke. Gotta make sure audiences know. Hey, maybe I should go to the lobby right now and buy a refreshing can of Coke. Mm-mm, Coca-Cola. Hey, I might as well relate this story now. So Coca-Cola owned Columbia Pictures at the time, and a bunch of their executives in suits came to the soundstages to watch filming. 
In his 2018 interview with Mike Ovitz in New York, Bill tells the story of how he and Dan Aykroyd thought these Coke execs were trying to look important, trying to feel like they were the big shots who ran everything. So on the set with everyone around, I think he's talking about the Temple set, but I'm not entirely sure. But all the workers are there, the cast, and Bill and Dan start glad-handing these guys, goofing off in front of them. But they never stop. And the execs are obviously starting to go, uh, when will you guys be filming? But Bill and Dan just keep doing this. Doing this, hours go by, and they're still not working. Wasting tens of thousands of dollars and time the movie production does not have. I think the Coke execs finally figured out what Bill and Dan were doing, so they left, and then Bill was happy that they never showed up again. Oh hey, and a final joke from me now. Peter holds up some bologna and says, You actually eat this stuff? I mean, first off, you live with Egon, you should know better than to criticize, Pete. But secondly, it's Oscar Mayer brand lunch meat. Eh? Dana liked the brand so much, she names her son Oscar for the sequel? Eh? Eh? Upstairs in the firehouse, notice that Egon is working on a wand for a proton pack at the table. He has a yellow multimeter out. I think my dad has that same model. Oh hey, and our old pal, the Coke cans are back. Ray and Peter are drinking Budweiser, but Egon has a Coke. As they're eating, you can hear the song In the Name of Love playing. It's by the English band, the Thompson Twins. And I think it might be the only song on the soundtrack album to predate the movie. It came out on Arista Records in 1982, and that should tell you right there why it's in Ghostbusters. Arista Records was Columbia's, now Sony's, music label. They just had access to the song. By the way, nobody in the Thompson Twins are named Thompson. Huh. I looked into it and discovered a comic book answer. The band is named after Thompson and Thompson, the detectives from Tintin. Huh. I like it. Back to the movie. Huh. They have two arcade machines and a pinball. That definitely seems like a waste of their funds. Maybe one of the guys already owned them, but then where do they keep it before coming to the firehouse? It also made me always wonder, who really wanted them? Ray's the most childish, but Peter's the most likely to slack off. But you can't even discount Egon. He might have appreciated the programming on these things and liked trying to understand them. Could have been any of the three. Here's what the machines are, all produced in 1980. On the left is Atari's Missile Command. You can tell from the yellow rectangle on its controls. In the middle is Star Castle by Cinematronics. 
To the right is the pinball machine Stargazer, made by Stern. Hey, Stern makes a Ghostbusters pinball cabinet today. Neat. Janine putting on her sensible shoes at the end of the night is a nice touch. Hey, and notice, she's not wearing the glasses in this scene. After making them a part of her character, she takes every opportunity to not wear them. We got one! And the guys slide down. Hey, back to my childhood brain for a moment. Ivan and everyone here is working with the idea that this is all a humorous situation. The guys are responding like firefighters, they even live in a firehouse. But just fast forwarding to how kids would react, and how little Ross would love this and the cartoon, while they are making something funny, it's a total accident that they're making something really appealing to kids. The Ghostbusters have a distinctive base of operations with the firehouse. Think of He-Man and Castle Grayskull, the Thundercats, the Ninja Turtles in the sewers. The guys also have a distinctive ride. It's supposed to be goofy, but kids end up just loving it. They have monsters to zap and distinctive tools. Ivan Reitman and company are just mostly unaware that they've also constructed something that, I mean, everyone will always find funny, but it also works just as sincerely as these other popular properties. I just find that interesting. It's like accidental alchemy or something, and they've turned metal into pure gold. Ecto-1 is revealed. The real one this time. Again, it's a 1959 Cadillac Miller Meteor Futura Duplex. Funny how there's fog around and bright lights even behind the car. That conveniently obscures you seeing inside the firehouse. That's because they don't want you to notice the exterior and interior to the firehouses are not the same, of course. Here's something interesting. So remember that the movie production couldn't film inside the New York firehouse because it was operational. But they needed this shot. They need to show the Ectomobile roaring out of there. I have to wonder if they were only able to do this at night. This helps facilitate the fact that no pedestrians are around and nobody's out driving. So I think the Slimer bust happening at night wasn't a random choice. It was partly dictated by them needing to do this shot, probably very late at night. And you might be familiar with what the night scenes also dictated. Dan Aykroyd intended the car to be black which would have fit with the idea that it's a hearse and they bust ghosts. But this is at night, and so is the scene later with Winston and Ray, which is really there to explain what Winston and Ray are up to for the whole night while Egon and Peter are occupied with the Keymaster and the Gatekeeper. So the production planned two scenes for the car that required it to be nighttime, and then it was pointed out that a white car could stand out a lot better at night. So Ecto-1 is white now. I wonder if that concern was unfounded or not. I think the worry was also that there'd be bright lights up top, so maybe you'd see those, but the details of the car would get lost for the viewers. We're used to seeing pristine, high-def versions of the movie now, but maybe back in the day, this was more of a legitimate concern, that it would end up being a dark blur with spinning lights. And speaking of high-def footage, today you can look at the street and notice they hosed down the road with water. That was a trick for years with movie film, by the way. Asphalt didn't look good at night unless it was wet, so it was often hosed down before you'd shoot. I've been told this is less of a problem with digital recording today, but what do I know? Also, speaking of the footage, Ecto-1 roaring out of there is undercranked. That is to say, they filmed it at one speed and then sped this footage up. You can even see this footage at its real speed in the Show West reel I talked about last episode.
Oh, hey, I love that sound. No other car has that particular siren wail. In Ghostbusters Ultimate Visual History, the sound engineer Richard Beggs revealed that its starting point really is a leopard. It's a leopard growling, reversed so you don't notice it. That's so cool. Here, let's try this out. Here is a leopard growl. Now here's that leopard growl reversed. Now here it is, sped up and repeated. And finally, here's that growl compared to Ecto-1 Siren. I'm not enough of an audio engineer to get that grinding, mechanical sound in there, but at least you can tell what Richard Beggs was doing. You can hear how a leopard growl could eventually be transformed into that siren. Oh, I want to mention, Stephen Dane was the prop builder. He's credited as hardware consultant. But Stephen Dane is the person who designed and helped build the Ectomobile, the proton packs and ghost traps and all that fun stuff. He had already worked on Blade Runner, where he was an assistant there. I believe he worked on Strange Brew and would work on Buckaroo Banzai and Ghostbusters 2. Honestly, I don't think Stephen Dane worked in Hollywood for too many years. It's difficult to find information on him outside of his big movies, Ghostbusters and Blade Runner, but the suggestion seems to be that he transitioned away from entertainment and was doing more design and architecture work in the private sphere. But yes, Stephen Dane is the man most responsible for the Proton Packs, Ghost Traps, and Ecto-1 and he passed away in 2016. Just before we leave Ecto-1, why is it called that? Even as a kid, playing with my Kenner toy car, I realized, okay, ectoplasm is what ghosts are made of, but did the Ghostbusters just pick on a term they know? Why not Ghost-1, or Psych-1, or even Bust-1? Well, I think there's a reason for this. Remember, I was telling you about how ectoplasm gets its name from being outside, but connected to a human body. I think the logic applies here. The car is an ecto, a shell, around the guys, the real human bodies. That sounds weird, or like a stretch in logic, but it makes sense when you also realize the ecto-1 was supposed to be haunted. There's a deleted scene where it gets a parking ticket, and the ticket erupts in flames. That comes out of nowhere. So they needed more scenes to establish that the car was actually haunted by the spirits of people who died in it. And this is all really complicated, so they just scrapped that idea entirely. That's for the best. But do you get it? I think Dan Aykroyd, and yes, I definitely think it was Dan, was making an association between what ectoplasm is traditionally supposed to be and how this haunted car is like that with the Ghostbusters. It's a weird joke, and something only he and a small group of spiritualists would get? Anyway, that's my theory for why the car isn't like Ghost One or Bust One or something. And they roll up to the Sedgwick Hotel. Again, there's a Sedgwick Street in the Bronx that's spelled differently, but honestly this place is just one letter away from Sidgwick, supernatural researchers and founders of the Society for Psychical Research. The Ackroyds are big fans of the Sidgwicks.
This hotel is actually the Los Angeles Biltmore, renamed the Millennium Biltmore Hotel after it was purchased by Millennium and Copthorne Hotels in 1999. Opened in 1923, it was the largest hotel west of Chicago when it was opened. Oh, before I launch into the hotel's history, we should just talk about its location. It's right next door to the LA Central Library where they filmed in the basement stacks. And get this, both the Biltmore and the LA Central Library are a 15-minute walk away from Fire Station 23. Heck, they are all on the same street, on 5th Street. Wow! When we talk about Ghostbusters shooting locations, we usually focus on the New York sites just because the film is set there and the public has access to many of those places. But from a practical standpoint, the production chose three spots, the library basement, the hotel, and the firehouse interior, and they're all close to each other in LA. By the way, while you can technically visit all of these places, you're only going to see recognizable shooting spots in the Millennium Biltmore. You can't go to the library's basement, and Fire Station 23 is a no-go for the public right now. But yes, the LA Library, Hotel, and Firehouse, they're all on the same street. The Biltmore has a long association with Hollywood, which of course it would, being a fancy hotel in LA. In 1927, MGM head Louis B. Mayer held the first meeting there that formed the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts, and Sciences, which was largely a distraction to hand out awards and make people in Hollywood think that they didn't need unions. Several Academy Award ceremonies were held there in the 30s and 40s. Oh, if you're familiar with famous crimes, the Biltmore Hotel was the last place Elizabeth Short was seen in January of 1947. Her body was discovered the following day at a different location, badly dismembered. It became a famous case in Los Angeles, known as the Black Dahlia murder, and has been fictionalized many times, including a 2006 movie starring Scarlett Johansson and the first season of American Horror Story. Interestingly enough, I don't think any Black Dahlia movie or show has ever bothered to film at the Biltmore, despite it having a connection to the case. Huh. Lighter things. Hey, the 1960 Democratic Convention was held here where John F. Kennedy accepted the nomination. The ballroom in Ghostbusters, where they trapped Slimer, used to be called the Music Room, and that is the exact room Kennedy and his team worked in during that convention. JFK was working to become the Democratic nominee in the same room Slimer was trapped. Ah. A few years later, in 64, the Biltmore was where the Beatles stayed when they visited Los Angeles on their American tour. And hey, guess what? Sigourney Weaver was at their concert at the Hollywood Bowl. Google Sigourney Weaver Beatles, and you can see a teenage Sigourney Weaver shouting, John, in a crowd. But yeah, after that concert, the Beatles went back to the Biltmore here. And the Biltmore has been a filming location for dozens of movies and shows. Ghostbusters might, might be the most famous to feature it extensively. But you've also got an exterior shot in Chinatown, Interiors of Rocky Three, Fight Club, Independence Day. But here's one to really care about. It's the fancy hotel in Beverly Hills Cop. That's funny that Ghostbusters and Beverly Hills Cop both feature this hotel. Eddie Murphy comes into what's actually the tea room called the Rendezvous Court on South Grand Avenue. The Ghostbusters come in from a side entrance at 5th Street West. And Ivan Reitman must have liked this place because he used it again in 1993 for Dave. It's where Kevin Klein shouts, God bless you! God bless America! And let's get into the film. 
we see the Ghostbusters in their gear. We all love it. It's great because they look dynamic enough, but it's still a joke, right? Take away their kinda cool, kinda goofy equipment, and they're still just wearing jumpsuits. They could be off to fly fighter jets. Or they could be here to spray for pests. Speaking of their outfits, to me they've always looked more gray. If you didn't know, the flight suits really were khaki, so a more tan or beige, but I don't know if it's mostly the lighting in the movie or the color process that makes them look more gray to a lot of viewers. They certainly look gray to me. I see modern costumes you can buy, and some of the more recent toys, and sometimes the outfits are this really light beige or tan, sometimes almost yellow even. It's weird to me, because I know that technically that's close to the correct colors, because that's what the actors wore, but I don't like that as much. I like those flight suits to be gray. <clears throat> Which is, for me to say, I have a true spec flight suit that I've dyed gray. But anyway, if you never knew that about the outfits before, there you go. Michael Ensign plays the hotel manager here. You might not catch it, but he's actually talking on the phone to the far right as the camera zooms in on the guys. Then he's out of the frame, then pops back into frame and startles them. If Michael Ensign has a clipped, almost English accent, then he comes by it honestly. He's American, but also spent years growing up in England and went to the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art. I also read on IMDb that he tried out for the Walter Peck role, which makes sense. This is almost the same role as Walter Peck, only in charge of the hotel rather than being a government official. Michael Ensign has been in a lot of stuff. He's a newscaster on TV and Superman. He's been in MASH and Matlock. <clears throat> I'm sorry, Matlock. He was on Friends. He's a rich jerk with a top hat in 1997's Titanic, which really seems like typecasting. Maybe that jerk on the Titanic was the Sedgwick Hotel Manager's great-grandfather. Oh, but one last thing I want to point out. He was one of those Star Trek guest star lifers. He was in every Star Trek series, from Next Generation to Enterprise, always playing different characters. Watch Bill Murray walking with the hotel manager here. He's mugging, doing a lot of facial expressions. Peter is humoring this guy about the ghost problem, making a bit of fun of him. I love it that Ray has to say, we handle this kind of thing all the time. Just a little extra lie to suggest they're more experienced than they really are. Oh, his line about the 12th floor being haunted. Think about that. I mean, for Westerners, 13 is unlucky, so hotels especially do not generally have a 13th floor. Slimer seems to regularly haunt the 12th floor to be close to the 13th floor? Is that nonsense? Well, here we're going to find another building in the movie will have a gateway to another dimension, so why not have an unlucky, unlabeled 13th floor be the haunting area for Slimer? The man at the elevator is Murray Rubin, and let me tell you, have you ever seen those memes online like, X person invented something in their 50s. Jack Kirby only co-created the Fantastic Four at age 44. That sort of thing. My point, Murray Rubin is a good example for those memes. He started acting in his 50s, and Ghostbusters was his first theatrical movie. He'd go on to be recurring on St. Elsewhere. He'd be on Roseanne and Seinfeld. For Seinfeld, he's in the episode where Morty, Seinfeld, and Kramer give all the retirees at Del Boca Vista bad calculators. Willards instead of wizards. Murray says, I'm ruined, near the end of the show. What can I say? I want to imagine Seinfeld and Ghostbusters existing in the same world. Maybe this man retired to Florida while Rhoda Gemignani still lives in New York. Oh, but here's a cute story about Murray Rubin. 
He passed away in 2015 at the age of 90. He had a granddaughter, or maybe great-granddaughter, sorry, I forget. Anyway, she and her boyfriend both loved the movie he was in, Ghostbusters. Her boyfriend proposed to her outside these elevators. That's so cute. Thanks to the Interdimensional CrossFit podcast for sharing that, and sorry I've forgotten the names of the couple. Watch Ray's proton pack as he approaches the elevator. What builders call the shock mount, the big metal bolt in the center of the four red lights, his shock mount is bent upwards. Oh no, I bet I've just ruined the movie for you, haven't I? The moment inside the elevator is fun, and it's actually a set and not a real elevator. I think we all like that Egon, the brainiest and least emotional Ghostbuster, is also the one to back away from Ray's activated pack. Speaking of which, I think none of us are actually sure how the proton packs operate. Not that it especially matters. I mean, Egon switches Ray on at the pack itself. And then in the very next scene, Ray and Egon seem to activate, or is it arming, their packs at the wands with the same sound effect. And upstairs in the hallways of the Sedgwick. This is all really a set in Burbank, which makes sense when they start damaging the walls. Here comes a cleaning lady with a cart. Okay, this is a popular anecdote, but I'm afraid it might not be true. So when we see the proton streams, those of course were animated in later by Boss Films. But the explosions and fire were real. So when filming, the explosion goes off and the actress, Frances E. Neely, dives to the floor. She says, What the hell are you doing? Which is just hilarious, and so is the Ghostbusters' lame apologies. Now, Ghostbusters' ultimate visual history claims that Neely was surprised by the intensity of the explosion, and what the hell are you doing was just an honest reaction she said to the folks who rigged the explosives. That makes for a good story, but it might just be that. It's just the explosive technicians who like telling this story now, and we really need Francis Neely alive to confirm if this is true. Oh, and watch Francis Neely as the guys talk about splitting up. She's spraying at a fire with a spray bottle, trying to put it out. Let's split up. We can do more damage that way. Oh wait, no, it's not the end of the podcast yet. I'll keep going for a bit here. By the way, Ghostbusters fans aren't really aware of how cool Frances Neely was. She was a tap dancer, and she danced with Bill Robinson. She danced for Count Basie's band. She has a bunch of small parts in Hollywood, Manchurian Candidate and The Jeffersons and Moonlighting. Hey, Bat fans, she's in the 1966 Batman movie. I even found out where, at 1 hour 15 minutes into the Batman film, she walks by the Batcopter in a light green outfit. But really, dancing on stage is where she was a star. She passed away in 1997 in her 70s, and let me tell you, you see footage of her in her 60s and 70s, and she was still a great dancer. Oh, when Ray and Egon fire their streams, behind them is a room labeled 1219. So far so good, since they're on the 12th floor. I will be bringing this up again soon. I love we see Ray smoking. Remember the big no smoking sign in the elevator? I guess to improve this joke, he should be smoking near a no smoking sign right then. And Ray spots the onion head ghost. But uh, let's call him Slimer. Oh, I want to back up a bit. Before the call to Janine, there was a deleted bedroom scene with a newlywed couple. They, uh, there's dialogue between them about whether it was better that they waited until after marriage to have sex, and the groom goes, eh, it would have been the same. 
Then a clock breaks, which I'm not sure how Slimer manages to do, unless he can turn invisible sometimes or has telekinetic powers, apparently. Hey, speaking of the clock, it shows it's 9.47, so if you wanted to know when the hotel scenes are supposed to be happening, it's after then. Anyway, the couple go to the bathroom. There's a green glow from Slimer off-screen, and then the husband makes a panicked phone call. I think the idea is that he'd actually call the front desk, and then the hotel called the Ghostbusters. Ivan really liked the newlywed scene, but you don't really need it. I think it would have been kind of interesting, in just that it would have been a bigger setup to Slimer, and you'd wonder for a while what exactly it was that the newlyweds saw. I've been ignoring a lot of the music cues in the movie, but the scenes of the guys exploring here just before they meet Slimer, the weird bing 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 sort of sounds, that's the Yamaha DX7 again. But we're back to the movie proper, and Ray spots Slimer, and that great cigarette hanging from his lip for a while, just a total accident. The Slimer puppet was made by Steve Johnson, who also crafted the Taxi Cab Zombie, the Librarian Puppet, and the Blue Subway Ghost. Steve Johnson made at least seven Slimers. For the final Slimer puppet, it's pretty clever. Okay, Slimer doesn't really have a traditional body. He's all torso and head in one, right? Well, still, in the final puppet, the main body, I mean, we'll just call it a body, of Slimer was all one piece. And his folds of fat hid the fact that Slimer had a detachable face. Steve made three faces, angry, a wide open mouth to eat, and an almost closed mouth intended for when Slimer drinks bottles of wine. When filming, they didn't even bother to use the drinking face, they just kept using the open-mouthed one. I wonder if they were just trying to film really fast and they ended up forgetting about it. There were all these production illustrations of Slimer that come close to the finished idea, but Steve says he also just had to go for it trying to make something in 3D that wasn't necessarily an exact copy of the illustrations. I mentioned in previous podcasts that Steve Johnson got word late that Onion Head was supposed to be like Bluto from Animal House. So he watched Animal House again to get familiar. In some interviews, he's also said that after he was told Slimer was supposed to be Bluto, he just didn't make any changes and said to Ivan Reitman's crew that he put a little Belushi in the puppet, and they said, oh yeah, I see it, so they just bought it. And I love it. Steve Johnson has a lot of sympathy for Slimer. He says Slimer never hurt anybody, and here they are zapping him and trying to shove him in a box. I love that he's got so much affection for his creation. Steve was also prescient, realizing that Slimer was basically an exaggerated cartoon sort of character before anyone else realized it. And then of course Slimer would go on to be a popular cartoon character. The puppeteer inside Slimer is a man named Mark Wilson on a black soundstage, and he had on black leggings. They also had lots of cables that were running out underneath to operate things like the eyebrows to external controls. Slimer was actually stationary while filming, so Richard Edlund used his expertise, you know, from Star Trek all the way through Star Wars, of moving the camera to simulate things like Slimer charging down the hallways. This is really the same as in Star Wars. If you watch how they made the speeder bike scenes in Return of the Jedi, it was just the same trick of zooming in or zooming out on the bikes. Here, they're doing it on Slimer. I think you can also best see Slimer's tongue for one moment here at the start, and that's another puppeteer reaching around Mark Wilson, manipulating the tongue with a hand inside. So, Ray fires on Slimer. The physics of the cart has never seemed natural to me, but, you know, that's fine. He misses Slimer, who flies off. It's hard to tell if the impact of the blast or Slimer's drag sends the cart away. Heh, <laughs> a quick diversion. If you're also my age, you probably saw this sequence often. 
in the opening to Muppet Babies. Beaker fires a zapper, and we cut to movie Slimer here. I don't know why, I just wanted to bring up that buried memory in some of your collective unconsciousness. If you watch carefully, you can actually see slime left behind by Slimer on the wall. And then the cart crashes into the wall, and the whole thing bends and shakes. Huh. Seems like a pretty flimsy wall. Almost like it's made out of cheap plywood and isn't reinforced like you'd use in a real building. Huh. Egon intently observing his PKE meter, to the point where he's ignoring his surroundings, and he pokes that man. Again, another joke that I really enjoy, but you can't describe it being funny so much as it's just weird, which is great. Again, his devotion to watching his little screens ties into how he's always using a calculator or some device. The PKE meter and calculator are handy objects, but Egon relies on them so much, he's observing the world in a two-step process. He's not observing the world around him, he's using screens to inform him first. Oh, at one point this joke with the man was going to be a sexy lady. That would have worked too, especially that he's at first oblivious to a sexy woman coming out of her room or something, but I kind of like the oddness of it just being some man, and Egon pokes him, ruining his readings. Peter meets Slimer. Notice Peter radios Ray specifically, just because you need the scene to play off one other character specifically, but again, Peter and Ray seem to share this little extra bond I was talking about. Hey, remember I pointed out a room number earlier? Now the numbers on the door don't jive with this being the 12th floor. The door you see when Slimer charges is 433, and when Ray is on the radio, he's next to 415. Maybe Peter and Ray changed floors? I guess that's the no prize answer, but I think we really were set up with the idea that all three of them are still on the 12th floor. I think the set builders must have asked what floor they were building, and Ivan, Dan, and Harold hadn't nailed down that it should be the 12th story yet, so they built it as the 4th for most of these halls. Oh man, another blunder. That's it everybody, Ghostbusters is ruined forever. Sorry. There's all that screaming and Slimer growling. By the way, that's Ivan Reitman's voice distorted, so Ivan is the original voice of Slimer. The scene is a good example of the difference between Ghostbusters and more serious special effects movies. In another movie, you'd want to show Slimer and Peter making contact, but since this is a comedy, it's funnier, and fortunately easier, to just have the music play dramatically. Ray rushes through the hallways, and you see Peter just lying down, covered in goop. Oh, the music. The strings and horns just repeat a note. It's the same idea as the strings playing one shrill note repeatedly in the movie Psycho, when Janet Leigh is being murdered. This is just a less shrill, less frightening version of the same effect. I'm sure Elmer Bernstein knew he was copying that idea from fellow composer Bernard Herrmann. Great! Actual! Physical! Contact! 
me being the cartoon kid again, you might not even think about it that much when you watch the real Ghostbusters cartoon, but the fact that Peter is the one who's repeatedly slimed by Slimer goes back to this movie again. I guess it's always the funniest that Slimer is usually messing up Peter as opposed to some of the other Busters or Janine. He slimed me. Ah, a great line. So deadpan and still funny today. Just remember, in 1984, nobody had ever said those words before. This scene had such an impact, it forever changed English. And now we just go ahead and use slime as a verb and not think about it. Also, this is probably one of the biggest jokes in the movie that relate directly to a ghost. It's probably this moment and the reveal of the Marshmallow Man. I think those two are the biggest ghost jokes. Maybe the librarian ghost scare too, I suppose. Ray is excited, and as a callback to the library stacks, Egon asks that they save some for him. Oh, remember, Ackroyd was aware this was probably grosser than you realize. The slime, the ectoplasm, is supposed to be an excretion from a human body. It's not literally mucus, but still. I kind of wonder how Egon knew the ghost flew down 12 stories. I guess an employee must have rushed upstairs and informed him? Anyway, the guys are moving back downstairs, and the movie production is back at the real Biltmore Hotel. The event that was being held in the ballroom was going to be the East Side Theater Guild Midnight Buffet. Kinda weird. Everyone in production had to really rack their brains what kind of fancy event would be held late at night, and I think it was Joe Medjuk who figured out that it could be a banquet after a theater production. And again, they have to consider all these things based on this bust happening at night. And that was all dictated on them wanting a scene of Ecto-1 speeding out of the firehouse. Interesting to see how there's a domino or a ripple effect based on the requirement of one scene, the Ecto-1 driving at night. The ballroom was just one of several at the Biltmore. This was known as the Music Room, and as I said before, John F. Kennedy was working here on the night he was nominated for the Democratic Party. I say Slimer being trapped here is of greater historical importance, but I guess I won't argue much. The small chandeliers really were a part of the hotel, but the production set up that giant chandelier specifically so that they could blast and drop it. Oh hey, can you visit this ballroom today? Well, yes, but it's no longer a ballroom. The hotel was renovated, and the music room was opened up and turned into the lobby with the front desk. If you go to the Millennium Biltmore's website, or better yet, go visit in person, and go to the main lobby, you're standing in this room. The easiest way to tell is if you look up, you can see the same ceiling. The walls are largely the same, though they have been repainted. They took down the four smaller chandeliers that used to be in the music room, though. Ray popping his head and looking with those goggles is a funny visual. Again, like Egon, the gag is this bit of tech is unnecessary. Peter even says, that's the one that got me, as if there's any doubt. When you see Slimer zooming around the big chandelier, flying in circles, they were actually filming Slimer on a big Lazy Susan. Mark Wilson couldn't walk or run away while wearing Slimer because of all the wires running out of it, so they just spun him around for this. Kaboom! And the chandelier comes down. I wonder why they didn't actually show it hitting the ground. You see it on the table later, moving a little bit. Maybe it just seemed funnier edited this way. Huh. Hey, the movie stops dead for a moment, so Egon can drop some facts on the audience. Sorry, I didn't mention this before, everybody, but don't cross the streams. Ha, this is pretty naked, pretty obvious about why the movie is doing this, that it'll matter later. 
At least they make a joke out of it that you'd explode at the speed of light. Why does it matter at what speed your molecules explode? You're still dead instantaneously. Okay, important safety tip. Thanks, Egon. This is an okay little moment, but it's also just one of the less elegant moments of the movie. They need to just stop things to set up a BS resolution for later. By the way, for the longest time, Dan, Harold, and Ivan didn't know how they'd stop Gozer at the end. They had already been filming, had already moved to LA, and only now did they think of crossing the streams. Well, now they've got an idea for when they move to the temple set. When Slimer drinks wine, notice it runs right through him. That's neat. This also would have been the perfect scene to use Slimer's drinking face, but I think they were just filming so fast that they never bothered to switch the faces. I want to talk about Egon firing in this scene because it's a prime example of something. The explosions were going off in real life, and Harold was pointing his wand way too high. He's not shooting at the explosions. This would be a problem if you were filming Star Trek or Star Wars. You need to fire your laser weapon in roughly a straight line. But here, Boss Films had this footage, so what can you do with it? Well, we're making this up as we go along, and it's a comedy, so what if we made the proton streams bend? This has been called rubberized light, or it's like a powerful jet of water from a fire hose. I think the weird, inaccurate proton streams are a great effect, but it's in moments like this where you see what Boss Films is doing. They're cheating because they don't have a better shot of Harold Ramis actually firing straight. By the way, I better mention the two guys animating the proton streams. This was done by Terry Windle and Gary Waller, two associates of Richard Edland who followed him from ILM to Boss Studios. In fact, both Windle and Waller had been animating the lightning coming from the Emperor's fingertips in Return of the Jedi. And here, the very next year, they're doing basically the same thing with the lightning coming out of Gozer. Cool. I want to go on a tangent. What? Me? Nah. But anyway, Terry Windle had an interesting career. He was an animator and started out on Saturday morning fair like the Smurfs and Spider-Woman. Then he got a chance to do something different and did backgrounds and layouts on Heavy Metal. But this is neat. Immediately after Heavy Metal, he switched over to ILM and was animating in E.T. and Poltergeist and Return of the Jedi and just happened to follow Richard Edlund to the next Ivan Reitman project, Ghostbusters. So he worked on two Ivan Reitman-related films, but it was totally by chance. He wasn't working for Michael C. Gross or anything. And years later, Terry Windle would branch out. He directed episodes of Star Trek Voyager and Enterprise. Sounds like he had a great career, and I think he kind of appreciated not being in the Saturday morning cartoon grind. He passed away in 2018. The other animator, Gary Waller, started out at ILM on The Empire Strikes Back. Once he followed Richard Edlund to Boss Studios, he stuck with that company, working on Die Hard and Batman Returns, Air Force One, and Starship Troopers. Since Boss closed, it sounded like he was doing commercial work for a time. This might be ancient history now, but do you remember in the early 2000s when iPods were still a thing? Remember those commercials with silhouettes of people jumping and dancing around, all listening to their iPods? Gary Waller was one of the people who made that happen. And here he is, around 20 years earlier, helping to animate the iconic Proton Streams. Character actress Katherine Jansen plays the lady without any lines, the person in charge of the weirdo Midnight Buffet. The internet tells me the character is named Mrs. Van Hoffman, but I always hear Van Houten. A relation to Millhouse in Springfield? I'm talking so much about extras, aren't I? Well, hey, where else are you going to hear this? 
First off, no, Katherine Jansen is no relation to Famke Jansen, the X-Men actress. Katherine Jansen is also no relation to David Jansen, you know, the fugitive. Anyway, Katherine Jansen had a career playing extras in L.A. productions. Her first roles were in a couple of Batman episodes. She was a passenger on the Poseidon Adventure. Just Google her name, Katherine Jansen, and you'll see who she is on the Poseidon Adventure. But I figured this out. I think she must have had a friend, or some connection, in Mel Brooks Productions. She's on Get Smart, Blazing Saddles, Young Frankenstein, Silent Movie. Wow. And here's a fun bit of casting. Katherine Jansen's son, Danny Nero, is also in Ghostbusters. In a scene that's actually outside the hotel, but is cut into the montage coming up a little later, her son Danny Nero is the white guy with dark hair almost in the center of the frame. Part of his chin is covered up by the news camera. So I'm guessing Katherine Jansen and her son, Danny Nero, both went to be cast in Ghostbusters, and it ended up that she's inside the Biltmore, and Danny was filmed right outside, where Peter Venkman is talking to the press. By the way... Danny Nero was in Star Trek III that same year, as a guard on the planet Vulcan. When Peter pulls the tablecloth off the table, there's some shine. It looks like a pane of glass is in the way. I've never heard it explained where that shine is coming from, or if there was a pane of glass in front of Murray. Must have been for some special effects shot, but now you can just see this horizontal shine in front of him. Ray rolls out the ghost trap, my favorite bit of the equipment. I want to keep on reminding everyone, because if you're my age, you probably take the Ghostbusters premise and technology for granted, but the fact that Ray calls it a trap is in itself a joke. The very idea that they're laying out traps, just like someone would lay out a mouse trap or an insect trap, but here it's for something fantastic, a ghost. The very idea is a joke again, the mundane and familiar, a pest trap, and the fantastic, with it being a ghost. Oh, but speaking of technology names... This is a little factoid most Ghostbuster fans catch. In the movie here, nobody actually says the words Proton Pack or Ghost Trap. Ray will say Trap a couple times in the movie, just not Ghost Trap. The words were written down in the script, but just not spoken in the film. Fans only found out what this equipment was called from other sources, and then real Ghostbusters really talked them up and, you know, you could buy them in purple boxes with the names in big letters. But yeah, the guys don't actually say Proton Pack or Ghost Traps. The trap sucks in Slimer. You can actually see a green blur of Slimer go in, but it's hard to catch. Before we go on, it's interesting, and I think a good choice, that the Ghostbusters deal with ghosts and monsters that generally don't really seem human. The librarian ghost definitely seems to be human when she's passive, but otherwise the Busters deal with warped or non-human creatures, like Slimer here, the terror dogs, the blue ghost later in the movie if they ever had a chance to trap it. This gets carried over to the real Ghostbusters, where the guys are usually trapping monsters or things that don't resemble human spirits. Of course there are counterexamples to this. The Scolari brothers in Ghostbusters 2 are supposed to be actual human souls, and the Busters have definitely trapped or fought more human-like beings on the cartoons at times. Even so, my point is it's better to not think about this too hard. What is Slimer the ghost of? And don't come back at me with possible answers from RPG books or fan theories. I know, I know, I've heard all of them. I'm saying it's horrifying if we think about the guys trapping, say, the spirit of your grandpa. You want to see the Ghostbusters eliminating pests and monsters, not human souls. 
beings like Slimer makes their job more palatable. We came, we saw, we kicked its ass. Ha, that is a great line. If you're not up on your history, Julius Caesar is supposed to have written, Vini, Vidi, Vici, I came, I saw, I conquered. Caesar wrote this in a letter to the Roman Senate after he won yet another battle. Frankly, Peter's line here holds exactly the same meaning as the original. I said I don't intend to go into the TV edit too, too much, but this part has one of the more famous alternate takes by Bill Murray with, what a knockabout of pure fun that was. That isn't bad, but that's not as good as, we came, we saw, we kicked its ass. The trap is smoking. Some dry ice is a cheap effect. But the trap is smoking and the hotel manager and even lots of the people in the background are coughing and acting like there's a horrible stench. This is probably the last remnant of the idea that the Onion Head ghost also stank in addition to being slimy. So I think the original idea was that Slimer inside was releasing a foul smell. But in the movie, we're just left with the impression that maybe the trap itself emits some bad fumes. Ray calls Slimer a Class 5 full-roaming vapor. Ghostbusters fiction, since the movie, have all had different takes on classifying ghosts, with the cartoons using numbers just as a scale to designate the power of something, while the RPG game and other sources have said that no, each number really determines unique properties about each ghost. Can it turn invisible? Then it's this number. Can it possess someone? It's this number. Stuff like that. That's all fine, but what's interesting to me is that Ray and Egon must have developed this numbering system on their own, right? Or maybe the authors of the books Egon and Ray looked up created these number categories, but you wouldn't think arcane books on ghosts would employ numbers like this. Eh, who knows. Peter starts making out the bill, even looking over at Egon while Ray is talking. And here's probably the most famous VHS memory for everyone. On cropped VHS tapes, formatted for your screen, man, it's been years since I've seen that message on a movie, but formatted for your screen, Peter would look off to the side while he detailed the bill, really for no reason. What we were all missing, and got back in widescreen releases, is that Egon brushes his face with four fingers, then flashes a one, telling Peter what to charge. It's a great little joke. And again, it's worth pointing out, Criterion was the first company to make a point of releasing movies in their original aspect ratios. Later on, other companies, including Sony, would follow suit. But one of the founders of Criterion is Ghostbusters' own producer, Joe Medjuk. Joe Medjuk helped give us widescreen movies at home, everybody. In a roundabout way, he helped bring back Egon flashing his fingers in this scene. Hey, you can see Katherine Jansen again as the Ghostbusters turn to leave. She's over by a plant. And cue Ray Parker Jr.'s song. Folks, this is a good place for me to have a break. Let's have an intermission. Go to the lobby, get some snacks. A Coca-Cola might be nice. Hmm. Go visit the washroom if you need to, and be sure to wash your hands. I hope you've been having some fun with me. We've mostly been getting into the nuts and bolts of our favorite movie, and hopefully you've learned some new facts. Go tell your significant other, your friends, your loved ones, and your children everything you've learned today. I'm sure they'll all be very impressed. I'm Ross May, and you can talk to me on Twitter, at Ross May Writer, or go to RossMayWriter.com to find my email there. Special thanks again to Laura Summer for the intro at the top of the podcast. Please follow her on Twitter, at LoveThatLaura. I'll talk to you after intermission, but for now, we'd better split up. We can do more damage that way. I ain't afraid of no 
afraid of no ghosts. Thank you.